Welcome to Skywave Audio Theater. I'm your host, Norman Gilliland. And we'll begin at the frontier, the frontier of space. And when it comes to space travel, you can blast through the atmosphere at 17,000 miles an hour, or you can load up on Ralston cereal and hurl into the solar system with the Space Patrol. It worked every week in the early days of radio science fiction, radio and TV both, since Space Patrol was in both media at the same time. And both would be exciting. The TV shows, for the sheer novelty of the medium in 1950 or so, despite the small, fuzzy picture subject to the whims of the weather and sets that didn't hold up under a close look, exciting on radio because the picture was always crystal clear and the sets futuristic thanks to the listener's imagination. From February 7th, 1953, this is Space Patrol with Crash Landing. Wheat Checks, Rice Checks, and Good Hot Ralston present Space Patrol! High adventure in the wild, vast reaches of space. Missions of daring in the name of interplanetary justice. Travel into the future with Buzz Corey, Commander-in-Chief of the Space Patrol! In today's transcribed adventure, Buzz and Happy have conceived an extremely daring and dangerous plan to surprise two criminals who are holding Carol captive in the Martian hills. Right now, they're nearing the hideout in a small atmosphere ship. We're getting closer. Fasten your safety belt, Happy. Here's where we intentionally develop power failure. I'm all set, sir. Hang on. About to make the worst landing of my career. That ground's coming up awfully fast, Commander. Got to make this look like a disastrous crash. Okay, but it's beginning to look too realistic. Now brace yourself. It's beginning to look like a real thing to me, too. We'll be back in just a moment with today's Space Patrol story, Crash Landing. Yes, it's Space Patrol, but first, a direct broadcast from the yard of public school number 10 on the planet Terra. It's recess here, gang, and I've got my eye on a fast-moving boy named Jeff Fisher. Man, is he supercharged. Hey, Jeff, come on over here and tell the gang how you get supercharged every morning. I just do it the way Buzz Corey does it. I ate a good breakfast with a checkerboard super cereal, like Rice checks. Rice checks? Say, that Rice checks is real swell eating, right? I'll say, and it's bite-sized, too. Only bite-sized rice cereal in the universe. Only rice cereal for me, boy. It's plenty keen. You betcha. So, boys and girls, don't you think it's about time you tried Rice checks? Remember, to think fast, to act fast, you have to eat a breakfast that supercharges you. A power breakfast with a checkerboard super cereal. So today, make it Rice Checks, the delicious bite-sized super cereal that helps to supercharge you. For several weeks, Commander Corey and Cadet Happy have been on the planet Venus, conducting an undercover investigation into a plot to defraud the United Planets government and Venus businessmen. Now, in civilian clothes, Buzz and Happy are in a surface car in Venus City, headed for the Venus City spaceport. Between them is a sealed pouch containing the results of their intensive work. 
There's a private space cruiser waiting for us just inside the east gate. Well, sir, do you think Vio knows that you've been investigating him personally? I can't be sure, but by using private ships instead of Terra 5 or other official ships, we stand a good chance of not being detected. Well, it sure was a bad break running into Carol last night in the lobby of the Venus Hotel. Well, luckily, I don't think anyone overheard when she called out our names. I looked around very carefully. You told her why we were in civilian clothes. Mm-hmm. She may be able to help us now that she knows the facts. Yeah, it looks like we picked a good time to blast off from Venus, Commander. The whole east end of the spaceport is deserted. We're in luck, Mr. Veal. Corey's car is the only one on the side road. Well, we'll need a lot more luck to get that evidence away from him. That's a break for us that he picked this deserted end of the port. Speed on, Bob. We can pass him before he gets to the gate. And then inside the gate, I make a quick turn, slam on the brakes, and you tumble out of the truck. Yeah. Chances are Corey won't suspect anything when he sees that this is a regular space patrol maintenance truck. They're usually in a hurry anyhow. Pour on the power, Bob. behind us, sir. They're blinking their lights to pass. By the way they're closing in, they must be in a hurry. Slow down a little and pull over. Yes, sir. Be on your guard in case they try anything. Wow, that guy drives like a maniac. Did you see him whiz past us? It's a maintenance truck. I'll bet the driver's another one of those washed-out space pilots. They always drive like they're sore at the universe. Hey, look at him barrel through that gate. Commander, the fool's gonna turn. Abby, stop. Somebody fell out of the truck. Smoking rockets. What a spill. He turned so fast it tossed the other guy out. At least the driver stopped. Come on, Hap, let's see if the man's hurt. Yes, sir. There's no excuse for that kind of driving. It's lucky we weren't going much faster. We might have run over him, Commander. I dropped the Commander, Hap. Oh, oh, sorry, I forgot. Hey, the fall must have knocked him cold. I'll turn him over gently. Okay. You didn't know I was going to turn. I slammed on the brakes just as he pitched out of the truck. Yes, I saw it. His head doesn't seem to be injured. I hope there are no bones broken. Well, let's have a look at him. None of my business, friend, but you shouldn't make a turn at that speed. Yes, I, I know. I, I was in a hurry to get to the other end of the uh, spaceport. My leg. Yeah, just take it easy now. You'll be all right. Now, don't move. Let's have a look at that leg. Yeah. Have a good look. Hey, put down that wrench. <coughs> hey, what do you think you're doing? Grab you're... the cadet, Bill. I got him. Slug him, Henry. Let go of me. <coughs> hurry. Get to the surface car and grab the evidence. Okay. And there is a dispatch case in the seat of the car. That must be it. Take a look in the back, just in case. We went to get all of it. Uh, there's nothing back there, Veal. All right, come on. Let's get to the truck. Look down the road. Here comes another surface car. Uh, it's headed right for the gate. We'd better get the truck rolling before they get here and start asking questions. Oh, we won't stand a chance in that truck. Let's take a spaceship. Huh? Hurry. We can blast off before the car gets here. Happy. Happy. Oh, my head. Happy. Our, our car and their truck are still here, but our spaceship is gone. I thought I heard a blast off, but I figured it was inside my head. I heard oh. another car approach, but didn't come through the gate. It must have turned down the road paralleling the fence. The evidence, sir. Did they get it? Yes, it's not here. I guess our undercover work wasn't so undercover after all. That must have been Vio, and he and his partner have taken our private cruiser. Well, maybe we can get another ship and blast off after them. First, let's go to local headquarters and spread an alarm. You drive that truck, and I'll take the surface car. 
Commander, an all-planet space patrol bulletin on VO is being spaceophone now. Good. I hope our units can intercept him before he has a chance to change ships. We aren't going to stay here at Venus City headquarters, are we, sir? All right now, there's nothing we can do that the search units can't handle. Besides, I want to investigate this gadget we found in the truck VO was using. Oh, that funny-looking electrical device. What is it? It's a stimutron. A stimu-what? Stimutron. It's a high-frequency electrotherapy machine used to treat advanced cases of venous fever. Oh, you mean the blood condition that some people get from being in the venous swamps too long. Yes. This machine is the only successful cure. There are only about six stimutrons in the, in the solar system, all in hospitals or clinics. No private individual has one. Well, then what was this one doing in the truck? Stolen, probably. Stolen by someone who needs the treatments and who doesn't dare go to a regular hospital. You mean... Vio has venous fever? Or one of his gang. I'm notifying all doctors to report anyone applying for stimutron treatment. Hmm. Well, uh, didn't Vio spend a lot of time around those Zyrola plantations in the swamps uh, arranging crooked deals? Yes. If he's got venous fever, he made a bad bargain when he traded that evidence for the stimutron. Oh, by the way, sir, did you get that message from Carol? Yes, she called two hours ago. I guess she thought we'd be on our way to Mercury by now. But she checked out of the hotel. I just contacted the manager. Checked out? I thought she was going to stay here a week. I guess she suddenly changed her mind. She left orders for the hotel to forward her luggage to Mercury. They don't have any idea where she is. I wonder why she decided to go to Mercury all of a sudden. Well, I hope it isn't her plan to follow us. Well, if it is, she's going to get a surprise when she lands on Mercury and finds out that we aren't there. We'll be on Mars in a couple of hours, Mr. Veal. That was a great idea of yours, taking Corey's space cruiser. Well, I've been checking over this evidence, Corey Catterd. You know, if this ever got to court, I'd be finished. Well, there's nothing to worry about now. All we've got to do is lay low... Henry! Oh, no. What's the matter, Mr. Veal? Oh, the stimulatron. I left it in the truck. Oh. oh, well, there's probably one in Lowell City Clinic on Mars. I can't just walk into the clinic with every space patrolman in the universe looking for me. I got to have those treatments. You know what that Venus fever does to me. Makes me helpless as a baby. Well, what are we going to do? We can't go back to Venus. Of course not. Henry, this is awful. I, uh, listen. What? I thought I heard the compartment door close back out. Oh, you're just nervous. Relax, Mr. Veal. You'll think of a way to get those treatments. Yeah, sure, sure. I got to. I just got to. Buzz, Happy, I hope you won't be angry. What are you doing aboard? Well, I, I thought Mr. this Veal, was... Mr. it's the girl we saw at the hotel talking... Shut up, Henry. All right, miss. What are you doing aboard our ship? Your ship? This is Commander Corey's ship, Mr. Veal. Uh, you know who I am. You have the advantage of me, Miss... Uh, uh, Miss... Carlyle. Carol Carlyle. The Secretary General's daughter. That's right, and I demand you return this ship to Venus immediately. Uh, that's impossible. We can't keep her with us, Mr. Beale. She's dynamite. The smartest thing for us to do is drop her off somewhere and be sure she's safe. Yes, I know. You're right, Henry. But if we do, we're running a good chance of being captured. Why did you have to spoil everything by being aboard? I had some information to give Commander Corey about you, Mr. Vio, and your friend Bob Henry. I was going to tell them where they could find you. Well, your attempt at playing detective has put you in a delicate position, and me in a dangerous one. Can't let anything happen to her, Mr. Vio. I'd say it's worth the risk to see she's returned safely. Wait a minute. Maybe this is a break for us after all. Yeah, some break. We can get this girl off our hands and still have a chance to avoid being captured. Henry... We'll go on to my hideout on Mars. I know how we can contact Corey without the risk of being captured. Commander, communications picked up Carol's voice on spaceophone channel 87. What? It's being taped, sir. Channel 87. Perfectly 
safe. I can't tell you where I am, but Don Veal and Bob Henry intend to release me. That's her, sir. This is Don Veal, Commander. Veal's got her. Don't try to contact me. Just listen. I've got Carol Carlisle, but it's her fault, not mine. That's true. I was aboard your private cruiser at Venus City Spaceport. After the ship blasted off, I came out to give you some information about Veal and found him and Bob Henry at the controls. Just keep listening, Corey. Carol's voice and mine are on a microtape. Automatically repeated from a robot-controlled rocket. It won't do you any good to locate a rocket. He's a tricky crook, all right. Get this, Corey. I want to get Carol off my hands. All I ask is a break. I've got Venus fever. If I don't get that stimatron back, I'm finished. Here's my proposition. Put a man in a spacesuit and drop him off in space at a point which I will give you in a moment. Withdraw your ship 10,000 DUs and wait two hours. I will pick up the stimutron from your agent and leave Carol near him. Also in a spacesuit, of course. Now get this. Carol's suit will be equipped with a cartridge that can be exploded by an electronic signal from my ship. Why, oh, that space trial have If any attempt is made by your men to space a phone, you, before the two-hour limit is up, I'll detonate the cartridge. Now, here's the point to drop off your men. Write this down, Happy. Yes, sir. Sector 4, Jupiter orbit, at intersection of celestial meridian 22, sun ecliptic angle 2 degrees, 23 minutes, 15.84 seconds. Got it, sir. If you agree to these terms, space phone your answer on 139 megacycles. I'll be listening. Stand by for a repeat of this tape. VO out. Cut it, Happy. The tape is on automatic rewind. What are you going to do, Commander? Give him the stimutron? Of course. I want Vio, but I want him alive. When we get Carol back safely, we can go after Vio with everything we've got. Switch to 139 megacycles, Happy. As I computed, Happy, this is the location Vio specified. I'll reverse rockets and stop the ship. Right, sir. I'll get into my spacesuit. Now, there's the stimutron. What about that gadget I'm supposed to attach to Vio's ship? Right here. Well, it's a miniature spacephone transmitter. Uh Uh-huh, with a magnetic attachment to hold it to the hull of the ship. It's set to start sending a signal two hours after it's fastened to the ship. All right, into the airlock, Happy. Don't waste your spacesuit transmitter until I contact you. Remember that explosive cartridge in Carol's suit. Commander Corey aboard Terra 5, calling Cadet Happy. Come in, Happy. Happy to Commander Corey. Are the two hours up? Yes. Did B.O. show up? Yes, sir. Everything worked fine. He dropped Carol out quite a distance from me, and I've been using my jetpack to get over to her. Is she all right? I don't know, sir. She hasn't moved. She's just floating. I haven't been able to contact her by spacephone. I'll come and pick both of you up. I've reached her now, sir. Why, that sneaking crook. What's the matter, Happy? Carol isn't here, Commander. The spacesuit is empty. We'll be back with Space Patrol in just a moment. Hey, you want to have some fun, gang? Listen to this jet cycle. Why, it's just a putt-putt, that's all it is, because all it has to go on is ordinary fuel. But pour in some super fuel and then see what happens. That jet cycle is supercharged now. Yes, sir, when it comes to supercharging, there's only one answer. 
Super Fuel. And the same thing holds true for you, especially in the morning when you haven't eaten for hours. To really get going, you have to get supercharged. Now, here's Buzz Corey's way of doing that. He eats a power breakfast with rice checks or wheat checks, the super cereals. And boy, oh boy, you ought to see how the commander dives into that checks. Yes, sirree, gang, checks are really good. They're so good, you grab the biggest bowl you can find, you shake in the checks, pour on the milk, sprinkle on the sugar, and that's it. You're eating the best tasting cereal in the universe. And to make a good thing even better, rice checks and wheat checks have that modern bite-sized design for easy eating. Zip, zip, zip. That's how easy it is to eat checks. Now remember, gang, a rip-roaring breakfast with checks is Buzz Corey's way of getting supercharged. So get going in the morning the way he does. Get out a big bowl and fill it with rice checks or wheat checks, the super cereals that help to supercharge you. <laughs> Commander Corey and Cadet Happy have followed to the letter the agreement with Don Vio, who promised to return the Secretary General's daughter, Carol, at a prearranged point in the Jupiter orbit. But instead of Carol, Vio pushed an empty spacesuit out of his ship. The commander has arrived at the scene of the rendezvous, and Happy, now aboard the commander's ship, is removing his spacesuit. That double-crossing, underhanded space rat. Mm, Vio is all of that, but now we've got to help Carol. He must have done something to her, and now he's got the stimutron. He's also got a miniature spacophone attached to his ship. Hey, that's right. Do you think we can pick up the signal yet? I'll turn on our receiver. Hey, it's working, sir. Now we can track him down. Yes, we've got to be careful. As long as Carol's in his hands, we can't take a chance in closing in on him. <laughs> oh, doggone it. Cosmic ray interference. See if you can filter it out, Happy. Yes, sir. All the times for that to happen. Well, it seems to be getting worse. We'll keep on this vector. Maybe we'll pick up the signal again. I got it, Henry. The steamer Oh, good. Any trouble? No, not a bit. Corey and the cadet were as good as their word. Have you found Carol yet? No. Frankly, I haven't looked. If she was stupid enough to crawl out the back room window, let her take the consequences. Uh, don't you understand? If she's not found, we'll have to take the consequences. Oh, all right, Mr. Veal. Come on. We'll look for her. No. You'll look for her. I got to hook up the Stimutron and take a treatment. I'm getting an attack of venous fever. The interference is gone, sir. I've got a fix on the signal. Good. It's coming from the direction of Mars, and the source is stationary. Then Vio has landed. We'll head for Mars and locate the ship. Got it, sir. The ship's down in the Tharsis Hills. Let's scan the terrain with the viewscope, Happy. Yes, sir. There's the ship. Shall we come in lower, sir? No, not in this ship. We can't let Vio know we've located him. How about notifying other units and swoop in quick and surround him? Remember, for all we know, Carol's still safe. If Vio's cornered, there's no telling what he might do to her. Uh, well, then we're stymied. No, not quite. There's one way we can land a ship fairly close to his hideout without making him suspicious. What's that, sir? Commercial atmosphere ships fly over this part of Mars. So we'll head for Lowell City and borrow one. Well, wouldn't Vio get suspicious if a commercial ship landed in that deserted section? Sure. If it was an ordinary landing. That's why I'm going to space a phone ahead and order a couple of crash suits. Crash suits? Uh-huh. We're going to stage an accident right in Vio's front yard. Carol! Miss Carol, I see you. Don't try to get away. Come here. You little fool. Where do you think you're going? I, I thought I could get to a relay station. There isn't one for miles. Besides, you're heading the wrong direction. 
Now, come back to the shack. And if I refuse? Then I'll carry you back. Why don't you be sensible? When the sun goes down, you'll freeze out here. What was the idea of running away in the first place? Vio was going to return you to Corey. I don't trust him. Well, one thing's certain. You won't survive the night out here in this hill. So you might as well trust us. It's to our advantage now to get you back safely. Well, all right. Well, now you're showing some good sense for a change. We're getting closer. Yes, we can cut the signal now. Well, fasten your safety belt, Happy. Here's where we develop power failure. I'm all set, sir. I, I guess. Well, Happy. Here's where I make the worst landing of my career. Nervous? When I put this shock suit on, I thought I could jump off a skyscraper in it, but now I'm not so sure. Near that knoll, half hundred yards from B.O. Brace yourself. Here we go. Well, here we are. Everybody out. A very realistic crash, sir. Are you all right? I guess so. Except I can't move my right foot. It's caught in the wreckage. Does it hurt? No, sir. The padding of the suit protected it. It's just wedged in. Vio or his partner will be running out here very soon. Maybe I can pry that bent Dura alloy apart and get you out before they get here. Well, why don't we go ahead with our original plan? Leave me here in the ship while you circle around to the shack. Our original plan didn't call for you to be helpless. Well, that'll make it look all the more like a real crack-up. Uh, besides, Carol may be in danger. Well, you may be right, Hap, but you'll be safer if you pretend to be unconscious. Yes, sir. I'll climb out the port... Hey, we did a good job. What a mess. If you're in trouble, use your miniature spacer phone. I'll keep mine on. Here, where are you going? To the shack. Oh, no, you don't. I'll get back to the shack. But somebody might be hurt. We've got to help them. Nobody could be alive in that mess. Well, I'm going to see anyway. Carol, come back here. We've got to get Vio and blast off before the rescue ships arrive. Get Vio if you want. I'm going to help. Carol, come away from that wreck. It might explode. I have to get him out. It's all right, Phil. Happy. How are you hurt? No, no, I'm okay. The commander and I planned it. Miss Carroll, get away from that wreck. That's Bob Henry, Theo's partner. Pretend you don't know me. Miss Carroll, you don't get away from it. Oh. Pilot's unconscious. Uh, uh, why don't you go get Mr. Veal? Yeah, now, isn't it lucky he was wearing a crash suit? Stand back, Carol. Let me have a look at him. Oh, Corey's friend, the cadet. All right, snap out of it, cadet. Leave him alone. Quit playing possum. I heard you talking to Carol. All right, all right. Quit shaking. I'll get out of the ship. I can't. My foot's caught. Oh, it is. Well, I guess you won't be much trouble. But just to make sure... What are you going to do? Give the cadet an anesthetic. Don't hit him. Oh, oh my hand. That blow never even phased him. It's the shock suit, stupid. And if you come near me, I'll clout you into the next sector of Mars. Now, there's no use bothering with you. Commander's probably around here somewhere. I've got a way to handle both of you. What are you going to do? Plant this cartridge in the wreckage where the cadet can't reach it. No. Give me that. Get away. Hey, don't shove her around like that. She'll get worse than shoving around in a minute. There. Now, if I have to detonate that cartridge, cadet, well, with all these metal fragments and the remaining fuel trickling through the wreckage, there ought to be quite an explosion. Henry, you can't do that. Then it's up to you to see that I don't have to. Come on, Carol. I'll get Vio and the detonating control. And, Cadet, if Corey's smart, he'll let you stay alive to see us blast off. All right. Go on, Ed Carroll. Hurry up. 
Yeah, good work. You found her. Did you hear that crash, Vio? Yeah, I saw the ship hit the other side of the knoll. I was going out when I saw you and Carol run over. No survivors, I suppose? Too many. Vio, we've got to get out of here. Corey and the cadets staged that crash. What? The cadets pinned in the wreckage. Corey's probably around somewhere. Come on, then. we got to get to our ship and blast off. Wait a minute. Where's that detonator unit? The one that explodes these cartridges. It's on the shelf. What do you need that for? Let's get out of here. I planted a cartridge in the wreck to take care of Corey and the cadet. Okay, now let's go. We'll have to take Carol with us for protection. Corey will send a flock of patrol ships after us. Come on, Carol, let's go. Take your hands off of me. Let go of her, Vio. Get your hands up. You too, Henry. Oh, Bob. We're blasting off. Put that gun away and step aside. If you don't, I'll fix that cadet of yours for good. Buzz, he means it. Henry put one of those electronic cartridges in the wreckage. And all I've got to do is press this button and transmit a signal that'll blow that wrecked ship to bits. Play it smart, Corey. Give me that gadget, Henry. I warn you, don't come any closer. One more step and your cadet's a goner. We'll see. All right, press the button, Henry. All right. Oh, Buzz! Corey, I didn't think you'd make me do it. Oh, well, it was a wreck anyway. Uh, Happy, I, I thought that you... Carol, stand back. Rush them, Henry. Carol, get out of the way. Henry, get the gun. Oh, no, you don't. Yeah. Oh. Have any more ideas, Vio? No. But, yeah. Buzz, I nearly died when that wreck exploded. I thought that Happy would be blown to bits. I caught a glimpse of Happy through the window. He'd already gotten out of the ship. I couldn't tip you off in front of these two. I pried myself out of the wreck with a hunk of loose metal. Happy, let's get these characters into their ship and take them to Terra. Yes, sir. Come on, Henry, on your feet. Vio, where's that pouch full of evidence you stole from us? They destroyed it, Buzz. They burned it. Yeah, at least we got ahead of you there, Corey. Now you can't convict us of larceny and fraud. That isn't going to help you, Vio. No, compared with what we've got on you now, larceny and fraud are going to sound like flattery. <laughs> <laughs> An exciting preview of next week's thrilling Space Patrol adventure in just a moment. But first... Hi, boys and girls. This is your commander reminding you to send in today for a pair of space binoculars. Send in today because this offer is soon going to end. You see, I don't want you to get left without one of these swell new binoculars. They're an item I want every single one of you to have. I just couldn't get along without my space binoculars. And for you to be a real space patroller, for you to be one of my own gang... You should have a pair of official Space Patrol space binoculars, too. So don't get left out. Send for your space binoculars today. They make everything in the distance look bigger and clearer. You don't even have to hold them. You slip them over your head and a strong elastic band holds them snugly to your eyes. You can study birds in the trees, spot planes in the sky, read faraway signs, see who's coming up the block, and do all kinds of other things with them all year long. Yes, sir, they're the real McCoy. Four-power space binoculars exactly like mine. Big plastic binoculars, five inches long and five inches wide. When you wear them, they stand out from your eyes three and a half inches. So you see, they're not flimsy celluloid goggles or a mask. Now, don't get left out. This is the biggest value we've ever offered, and the offer soon ends. Captain Dick Tufeld, tell the gang how to get their space binoculars. Buy a box of Instant Ralston. Then, with your name and address... Send 25 cents in coin and an instant Ralston box top to Space Patrol, Box 686, St. Louis, Missouri. This offer good only in the USA and may be withdrawn at any time. Gang, if you don't agree your binoculars are tops, return them and we'll return your money. That's Space Patrol, Box 686, St. Louis, Missouri. 
And now, an action preview of next week's exciting Space Patrol adventure. Buzz and Happy have descended into a canyon on Venus to rescue a wounded space pilot. As they reach the injured man, a flash flood roars down the river, piling water up behind the dam above them. We gotta get him out of here quickly, Happy. The water's rising fast. Once we get him to the ledge, we shouldn't have any trouble carrying him to the top. It's a landslide! Press close to the dam and keep your head down. Smoking rockets, that was close. Hurry, we gotta get him up the path. There may be another landslide. Commander, look up there. Most of the ledge is swept away. We're trapped. Be sure to be with us next Saturday for the exciting story, The Mysterious Meteor, when Wheat Checks, Rice Checks, and Good Hot Ralston again present Space Patrol! This is Commander Corey congratulating a great organization on its 43rd birthday, the Boy Scouts of America. You're an inspiration to youth, a part of America itself. Space Patrol salutes you, Boy Scouts of America. Space Patrol, an original Mike Moser production starring Ed Kemmerer as Commander Corey and Lynn Osborne as Cadet Happy, was written by Lou Houston, directed by Larry Robertson. Other players were Ken Mayer, Virginia Hewitt, Bela Kovach, and Stephen Robertson. Dick Tufel speaking. Now, don't forget to tune in next Saturday and every Saturday when Wheat Checks, Rice Checks, and Good Hot Ralston again present the new exciting Space Patrol. And be sure to see another exciting Space Patrol program on your local ABC TV station. Consult your paper for time and channel. Space Patrol comes to you transcribed from Hollywood. This is ABC Radio Network. Real-life World War II fighter pilot and one-time POW Ed Kammer as Buzz Corey in Crash Landing, Space Patrol from February 7, 1953. Ten years later, Kammer would star with William Shatner in a famous 1963 episode of The Twilight Zone, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. One of the great theater actors of the 1930s and 40s showed up only rarely in films and on radio. Of working in film, he and his equally famous wife said, We can be bought, we cannot be bored. It's Alfred Lunt in Theater Guild on the Air, next here on Skywave Audio Theater. Milwaukee-born Alfred Lunt was best known for his long stage partnership with his wife, Lynn Fontan. From the 1920s to 1960, they co-starred in Broadway and London West End plays. In 1924, the Lunts joined the Theater Guild, which staged plays on Broadway, but put on serious and experimental plays that were rejected by more conventional producers. In 1943, the Theater Guild began weekly broadcasts of hour-long versions of plays. Lunt and Fontaine appeared in a few of them, and Lunt alone in one or two. And here he is in The Second Man. It's Theater Guild on the Air from February 3rd, 1946. The Theatre Guild on the Air. Tonight we bring you S.M. Behrman's comedy, 
The Second Man, starring Alfred Lunt as Clark Story, Jesse Royce Landis as Mrs. Kendall Frame, Peggy Conklin as Monica, and Paul McGrath as Austin. Story, the writer. But Clark's story is not there to answer it. Clark's story has not been there all afternoon, but his phone has been answered every time it has rung. It has been answered by Mrs. Kendall Frame. Mrs. Kendall Frame has been on hand all afternoon because she has an appointment with Clark's story. And Mrs. Kendall Frame has begun to wonder if Clark's story has not been on hand for that same reason. I won't answer it. Oh. Mr. Clark Story's apartment. What? Well, uh, this is Mrs. Kendall Frayne. Who is this? Oh, Miss Gray. How do you do? Uh, no. No, Story was here, but he went out. He'll be back, I guess, in a few minutes. Yes, I'll leave a message for him. Not at all. Goodbye. So humiliating. Well, Colonel, I'm late. I'm awfully sorry. Story, I'm leaving. Oh, come on now. I'm not so late. Only an hour. Well, the distinguished English novelist insisted on my dropping into his hotel, and we got to talking. I'm leaving. Honestly, Kendall, I rushed up here as fast as I could. I had a fight with one taxi driver, and it took me hours to find another. Now, please don't be angry. I'm full of things to tell you. This always happens. Besides, I thought you'd be quite comfortable. I left my new story for you to read. That took exactly 15 minutes. Only that? Really, I must write a novel. Story, you've got to stop treating me like that. Well, I swear, I only stayed so long because I thought it would amuse you to hear about the great English novelist. I kept saying to myself, now, this will amuse you. Don't talk to me like that. It's all right for Monica Gray. It's transparent to me. Oh, uh, she just telephoned you, by the way. What's she want? You. Naturally. It was humiliating. I had to say you'd gone out. Uh, Of course, she knew I was waiting for you. Well, I'm going. Uh, no, 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 please, just a minute. Uh, you're being very... Uh, hello? Oh, hello there, Austin. What about? Monica? Again? But I thought you were all set. Oh, you take her too seriously. Well, I'm busy just now. Uh, Mrs. Frayne. Uh, sure, later. Yeah, goodbye. Austin Lowe, all burned up about Monica Gray. And she's all burned up about you. Nonsense. She's a baby. Doesn't know what she wants. I think she does. Why don't you marry her? I have other plans. Meaning? Meaning you. Why should you want to marry me outside the fact that you love comfort and I'm rich? Well, outside of the fact that I love comfort and that you are rich, I like you very much. I like you enormously. You're the most intelligent woman I know. No, no. Not so intelligent. I discovered that just now waiting for you. How? I was jealous. Of a celebrated English novelist? Oh, you misunderstand me, Kendall. Jealous of your independence of me, your self-sufficiency. I saw you there talking, enjoying yourself, reveling in your own fluency. I realized perfectly well you'd forgotten me. Or if you did think of me, you're saying, oh, she'll wait. I was jealous, Story. You too. Mm. My last 
hope is gone. <laughs> you see, Story, you aren't the least bit in love with me. Well, I feel a much rarer, more stable emotion, friendliness, and all sorts of affection. Yes, I, know, I know, I know. I was hoping that you and I might demonstrate the triumph of the loveless marriage. I might even bow to that story if I didn't think you were in love with Monica Gray. Uh-huh. You've noticed how I look at her. Oh, yes. It's quite obvious that you want her. Well, perhaps. But aren't you a bit confused? I may want her, but does that mean I love her? <laughs> You're impossible, story. Well, anyhow, what difference does it make? Monica will marry Austin Lowe. Uh, Austin's much too dull for Monica. Dull? The most promising young chemist in America, under 30, and he's actually discovered something new, an element. He hasn't discovered how to please Monica. Kendall, I'll let you into a little secret. Austin and Monica are engaged. Hmm. That's not the way I heard it. Just happened yesterday. And today it's all over town that you and Monica are engaged. Who'd say a ridiculous thing like that? I'd suspect Monica, wouldn't you? No, Monica would never say that. She knows I'm not going to marry her. How does she know? Because I told her the last time she proposed to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're much too flippant. I'm going. You'll come back and have dinner with me, won't you? I shouldn't. But you will. But I will. And story. Yeah? It's the end of the month, and I'll bet you haven't a cent. Oh, I uh, sold a magazine piece the other day. Yes, but you won't be paid for that for a while. Let me give you a check to tide you over. Oh, Ken, this is bad. You give me 200 now and 500 another time and 400 oh, another. Why shouldn't you take my money? I've more than I need. Yes, but this way, it's so demoralizing. Ken, you've got to marry me and put me on a regular allowance. <laughs> Yes, waiter, thank you. And the other lady gets a martini. Yes, there now. Linda, Linda, you mustn't tell a soul, but it is true. Story and I are engaged. But of course, it's a big secret. Hello? Yes, this is Monica Gray. Oh, Harriet, darling. Yes, it's true. Clark Story and I are engaged. But he'd be furious if he thought I'd told anybody. Oh, hello, Austin. Hello, Story. Well, you don't look very chipper. I'm not. Story, I have to talk to you. What about? Monica. Monica? She's thrown me over. Oh, nonsense. She means it this time, Story. See here, Austin. Now, let's not just stand here like a pair of exhibits in a wax museum. Now, you sit down. Oh, thanks, Story. Now, what's it all about, Austin? Monica gave me back the ring. Well, I'm glad she did. I never was crazy about that ring. Now, Cartier has just a thing for Monica. Now, it's an oblong... Oh, don't you see? She doesn't want any ring. She doesn't want me. Story, what did I do? Leave her alone. She'll come back. Well, the worst of it is... What? She loves somebody else. Said so? Yes. Who? Wouldn't tell me. I don't believe it. Why not? She'd have told me. You you think so? Certainly. She would, unless unless what? Unless the man she loves is you. <laughs> oh, you're crazy. Well, she likes you. She likes you better than me. That's plain. I don't see why you don't marry her. Well, she's penniless, for one thing. She couldn't stand the poverty of my menage. And <laughs> neither could I. It's so strange. I, I can't understand it. You're not in love with her? There speaks the eternal lover. I think it's strange that you are in love with her. She's pretty, I grant you, but great heavens, man, she's so young. She is young. She's full of spirits. Isn't she? 
Always laughing, like the constant ringing of chimes. It is like chimes. Austin, anyone who looks as ecstatically miserable as you do right now obviously needs a drink. Yeah, I'll mix you one. Well, make it a scotch and soda. Well, if I thought it would make you regard Monica as something less than a goddess, I'd mix you a double zombie. <laughs> I, I can't think of anything but Monica. No, here you are. Oh, thanks. You know, if you want Monica, really want her, you can get her. That's what you always say, but it's not true. Austin, don't you realize that Monica's a child? She doesn't at least know what she wants. Now, wait until after she's married. Now, that's up to you. Now, you talk to her. Teach her to see how wonderful science is. Go on about the marvelous delicacy of your experiments. Oh, if I could only talk like you. Oh, that's easy. How? Cultivate superficiality. <laughs> if she only understood me as you do. Well, she should be made to. How? Maternal pressure. Monica's mother's perfectly cracked about the idea of having you for a son-in-law. Oh, it's not your scientific eminence. It's not even your family, though, of course. That has something to do with it. No. It's your money, my friend, your lucre, your multitudinous scratch. Well, I can hardly believe that. Well, I'm sorry, but that's what it is. The greys are mighty hard up. Monica's been dressing shamefully of late. Why, she looks better. I know, I know. Niftier in gingham than a fine lady in velvet. She looks wonderful in anything. Oh, how extraordinary that a little girl like Monica can make a scientist like you talk like a hack writer like me. <laughs> Look here, Story. I don't quite like your tone about Monica. I'm awfully fond of her. Now, don't misunderstand me, but she is a spoiled little minx. She's as shallow as a platter. Her lack of appreciation of you proves that. Well, she's only 20, and she's so gay, so full of fun. I can't prattle, Story. I, I can't follow her small talk. Her talk is not small. It's infinitesimal. <laughs> I don't do the things she likes. Dance, play tennis, you know. No, no, you wouldn't. But you'd better marry her anyway. Well, you keep telling me to marry her as if I didn't want to. Story, I'd give my soul. I don't think that will be necessary. If you'll only remember that everything's on your side, you've so much to offer. I wish I thought so. Well, if you persist, you will win her, as the military men say, by attrition. She told me not to try to see her, not to ring her up. I tell you a story, I don't know what to do with myself. Oh, you're a great argument against celibacy, Austin, old boy. Excuse me? Hello? Oh, restaurant. Yes, I did call. I want dinner for two served in my apartment up here. Oysters, then clear soup, supreme of chicken with mushrooms, salad. Yes, yes, do that. At seven o'clock. Thank you, Frederick, for two. Oh, if that means you're inviting me for dinner, Story, I'm awfully grateful. Uh, but Austin, old man, I'm awfully sorry. Uh, yes? I'm awfully sorry it has to be chicken again. But you are invited. Thank you, Story. Now, I've got a little work to do. Uh, why don't you run around the corner of the chemist club, look over some of those fascinating magazines full of algebraic formulae, and then come back here to dine? Oh, that's awfully good of your story, really. I hate to be alone. I know. You know... You're the only person I can talk to. Well, we'll talk at dinner. Uh, a story, uh, there's something else. Yeah? I've been wanting to speak to you about it for some time. Oh? Yeah, it's uh, about money. That's my favorite subject. <laughs> uh, your uh, writing, does it... Uh, well, I, I mean to say, does it bring you in very much? Not much. Money, if that's what you mean. Well, that's what I thought. Well, you see, I... <laughs> well, I mean to say... 
Well, hang it all. I'm so rich, Story. Won't you let me help you out occasionally? Of course I will. Thank you, Story. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. You're welcome, Austin, old boy. <laughs> Monica, I'm in my apartment. Of course. All right. Well, what if I did tell you I wasn't going to be here? But I am here, and I wanted to make sure that you'd come over. No, your ears are functioning quite well. Now, make it soon. Goodbye. Come on in, Monica. Won't I just, though? Yes, and you'll just, though, go part of your nose. Well, what do you think I did just before I rang your bell? Well, go comb your hair, then. I'll bet you haven't combed your hair for three hours. Why do you want to get me out of this room? Because the telephone is in this room, and I want to use it privately. All right, but it doesn't take me long to comb my hair. Hello, Ken. Ken, listen, darling. Will you ring me up in about 15 minutes? Now, never mind what I say. Just phone me. Comedy, my dear. I'll tell you later. Oh, and Ken, I've changed my mind about dining here. I'll come to your place about 6.30. Yes, darling. I did order dinner, but I'm going to let two other people eat it. Goodbye. All right, Monica. Your hair must be beautiful by now. Oh, thank heavens. Sorry, what was that phone call about? Business, just a plot I'm working on. Is it a wonderful story? Yes, with a happy ending. They get a divorce. <laughs> You're cynical. But you do write wonderful stories. My stories are dishwater. Dishwater with eau de cologne in it. <laughs> Why did you ask me to come here? Because I want to know about you in Austin. I can't go through with it, that's all. But you told me, you definitely told me you'd made up your mind to marry him. You're not a bit nice today. You're an awful nitwit, Monica. I'm not. You're a nitwit. Story, tell me the truth. Wouldn't you rather have me sitting on your lap than Mrs. Frayne? I can't imagine Mrs. Frayne sitting on anybody's lap. No one requires you to imagine that, my dear. I don't like Mrs. Frayne. She likes you. I don't believe it. I'm sure she says nasty things about she me. She doesn't discuss you. She thinks you're very pretty, but adolescent. I may be young, but my thoughts are mature. What have you been reading? No, I don't like Mrs. Frayne. She's a bad influence on you. Will you please stop chattering about Mrs. Frayne and tell me about you and Austin? Would you really let me marry you? Let you? I pray for it. You mean you go to church and watch it happen? Yes, and go home and rub my palms and say, that's that. But I'd always be awfully fond of you, Monica. Fond? Well, mighty lucky for you, I'm not in love with you. Now, tell me about you and Austin. I will. Well? Now, don't hurry me, darling. I'm going to stay here a long time. Oh, no, you're not. <laughs> oh, yes, I am. I'm going to stay here and dine with you, and then we'll have a long talk, and after that, we'll take a walk. And after that? I'll come back with you if you like. I won't marry you, Monica, no matter what you do. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm so unhappy. Why? Because nobody loves me. Austin loves you? He's crazy about oh, you. Oh, don't talk to me about Austin. He bores me. He bores me to death. Monica, I want to tell you something. Now listen. Now listen. 
I intend to be honest about Austin. You get me, don't you? He's so helpless that I don't intend to take advantage of him. Besides, he's a fine fellow. He's awfully sincere. He's awfully honest. But he bores me. I don't like him. Well, he's inarticulate, but he has a fine brain. A chemist, Monica. A practical chap. Oh, so helpful around the house. I don't love him. Well, you might learn. One can learn to love anybody. But I love you, Stuart. Oh, now, don't be a silly child. What sort of a life do you suppose we'd have together? Cozy. Well, what would we live on? Our work. At what? I'll typewrite. What? Your stories. But when I marry, I won't write any more stories. Oh. Well, then I'll go into the movies. I have a friend who's a director. Your mother would be delighted. Oh, by the way, I've told mother. You've told mother what? That I can't marry Austin because I'm in love with you. You didn't. Mother despises you, stories. And you're fool enough to tell her? Well, that's not all I told her. Quite enough. I told her that you loved me, too, and that you'd ask me to marry you, and that I'd said yes. You see, I intend to make quite a campaign. I have a good mind to spank you. I thought you. that if I told Mother you'd ask me that you'd be, well, sort of compromised. You see, I'm trying to get it spread around that we're engaged. Now, Monica. For once, don't talk and listen to me. The fact is that I'm doing all this for your good. You ought to marry a poor girl story. It would stimulate you, make you work harder. Are you quite finished? Not quite. I just got an idea. I think I'll phone an announcement of our engagement to the newspapers. You'll do no such thing. I've got you, story. I've got you at last. Now, come here. Now, you come here. Now, put that down. There, now. Now, you sit down like a lamb and concentrate on what I'm going to tell you. All right, teacher. I'm too old for you, Monica. And yet you want me to marry Austin? He's as old as the hills. He's much younger than I am. Well, he seems older. Look, uh, hand me that magazine over there beside my handbag, will you? There it is. He sent it to me. It has an article of his in it. Look here. Now, I ask you. Proceedings of the International Physiochemical League. A new method of separating atoms and eons, which are chemically similar but have different weights by diffusion, including the separation of radium from the barium residues, tells you what to expect, doesn't it? <laughs> now, whatever do you think Austin thought I'd see in that? Now, wait. This is very touching, Monica. This is his great work, and if you had any imagination, you would see that giving it to you was a tender and beautiful gesture. Now, this is... Austin's lyric, Monica. Oh, you're so generous about others' story. I love you for it. Don't be too sure of my motive. Perhaps it's because I want to conveniently get rid of you. Well, I won't marry Austin. Why not? He won't bother you. Spends ages in his laboratory, you know. Well, I'm sure he doesn't sleep in his laboratory. Uh, 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 Monica, really? Uh-uh. Impossible. <laughs> story, am I so terrible? Don't you love me at all? I'm awfully fond of you. But I'm going to marry Mrs. Frayne, if she'll have oh, me. Just because she's rich. The trouble with you is you're selfish. Of course I am. Well, just admitting it doesn't do any good. You, you like to go about and be petted by people and your silly little comforts. Story, I know deep down you're fonder of me than of anyone. Just as I know that I'm fonder of you than I ever shall be of anyone. Oh, Monica. Monica... Uh, you're so young. <laughs> Story. No, no. Story, darling. Uh, Kiss well, me. Uh, <laughs> Don't answer it. It's Austin, sir. Austin? Oh, uh, well, I think it's Austin. Don't answer it. He'll go away. Um, <clears throat> come on in, Austin. The door's open. Promise me you'll get rid of him. Promise. Hello, Story. I... Monica? Speak to the gentleman, Monica. <laughs> Hello, Austin. I'm awfully glad to find you here, Monica. Are you? Yes. You excuse me? Yes. Oh, hello. Waiting for me? 
But our engagement was for Sunday, wasn't it? Oh, no, is this Sunday? Oh, how stupid of me. Yes, of course, I can make it easily. I'll be right there. Goodbye. Well, certainly lucky you two are both here. Why, what's happened? Well, why? Well, I had a date for Sunday, and I thought it was Saturday. And here I've gone and ordered dinner for two cents up. Austin, would you mind dining with Monica instead of me? Here? Yes, I've ordered a delicious dinner. Oh, I'd love to. Well, that is if Monica... Oh, I'm delighted. I'm simply overjoyed with happiness. Well, I really got the dash. Oh, Austin, would you mind lending me a dollar for taxi fare? I don't believe I have a cent on me. Oh, of course. Well, there's one thing about Austin. He's not one of those millionaires who never has any money on him. You want more? Here's a 20. Well, perhaps I'd better. So long, children. <laughs> uh, you'll find everything ready for a cocktail in the kitchenette. I I'll go and start mixing them, Monica. This is a dirty trick story. You're dining with Mrs. Frame. Yes, and you're going to stay here with Austin. Think how good the cocktails will be mixed by a chemist. Goodbye. <laughs> Monica. Well? What is it? Uh, I've been reading the directions, and it doesn't say how much gin or how much vermouth, Monica. Are you any good at mixing cocktails? Curtain rises on Act Two of The Second Man, starring Alfred Lunt's story, Jesse Royce Landers as Kendall, Peggy Conklin as Monica, and Paul McGrath as Austin. because there is nobody there. It's not even because there is only one person there too sane to talk to himself. It's because there are two people there, Austin Lowe and Monica Gray. Austin too much in love with Monica, and Monica too little in love with Austin for either one to have much to say to the other. They're finishing the dinner that Clark Story ordered for them. Will, uh, will you have some more coffee, Monica? No, thanks. It's a... It's a jolly dining up here. Isn't it? It is for me, anyway. I suppose you're bored. Oh, no, of course not. I wish I knew how to amuse you, Monica. You're restful, Austin. That's something. But it's not enough. If I could really talk the way Story can. Or if Story could really feel the way you can. If I could just find the words. Monica... I don't think it's just selfishness that makes me want you. I think when I look at you sometimes that we belong to each other. That we are like two hemispheres. Take us separately and we mean nothing. Put us together and we form a perfect rounded whole. Austin, you are finding the words. If you could only love me, Monica, your love would be like a magnet. And we would come together side by side like... Like, like, like two pieces of steel shavings in a magnetic field. What an amazing idea. If I could only awaken you, Monica, the, the way a student may be awakened to the interrelation of everything in the cosmos. Monica, do you realize that biology and physics are moving closer together every day? Austin, are you talking about love? Yes. 
Well, I guess what you mean is that you're in love with me. And if I were in love with you, then we'd be in love. I guess so. You're a dear, Austin. Far too nice for me. I'm just a restless little nobody who doesn't know what she wants. You're fairly certain about what you don't want. Austin. Yes? Do you like Mrs. Frayne? Yes, I think she's a lovely woman, don't you? She probably was. I wonder, will Story really marry her? I've no idea. I think she's in love with him. Why not? I think it would be a good match, don't you? How can I tell? Story sees her every day. Can't we really find anyone to talk about except Story? Well, you're so keen about him. What makes you think that? Aren't you? I despise him. But last night... Last night doesn't matter. Today does. I despise him. Well, then perhaps... Perhaps... Perhaps what? If there's no one else, I... I mean, if you're not in love with Story or anyone else, perhaps... Please, Austin. Oh, Monica. Monica, you're crying. Aren't you happy? Not very. Why don't you marry somebody else? Somebody worthy of you. Because I want you, Monica. I suppose I'm stupid. I've tried to reason you out of my consciousness. I can't do it. Well, I'm just as stupid as you are, Austin. Stupider. Why? For loving him. Loving whom? Story. Story? Of course. Who else? But but, but he's asked Mrs. Frayne to marry him. They shan't marry. Monica, do you want to marry Story yourself? Story's in love with me. He isn't. He told me so. When? Just before you came. He lied. Why should he lie? I asked him to tell me the truth. Austin. What? Austin, look at this. A check for $500 made out to Story. Oh, you shouldn't look at it, Monica. Austin, it's signed by Mrs. Frayne. Well, they'll probably marry soon. I don't see any harm in it. She's trying to buy him. He seems willing to sell. <laughs> he has no character, not an ounce. And yet... You want him? No. No, I'm orphan for life, I swear. Oh. You want to marry me, don't you? Well, I've changed my mind. I'll marry you after all. Story. Yes, Ken. This has been very nice this evening. But you haven't yet told me why we didn't have dinner in your apartment as we planned. Because Austin and Monica are having dinner there. Story, does this have anything to do with that absurd telephone call you had me make to you? Of course. As an extremely self-critical writer, I maintain that this is one of my best plots. Why are you pushing Monica and Austin together? Why? Because Austin will make an admirable husband for her. She'll settle down and have babies and live in luxury. Her mother will spend her old age in comfort. And so shall I, Kendall, with you. (laughs) Would you want to marry me if I were poor? That would be presumptuous. Presumptuous? I'm afraid you're a luxury I couldn't afford. (laughs) You're awfully mercenary. I'm mature, but I'm honest as well as mercenary. If you do marry me, I promise, I absolutely promise not to live above your income. (laughs) Perhaps. But what about... What about other women? Oh, I'll always come back to you. Oh. You make me feel like a terminal. <laughs> oh, I wish I weren't in love with you. Well, you won't be long. 
<laughs> we'll be very happy. I've been in love with you now for three years. Yeah, but most of that time your husband was alive. Oh, stop it. Stop being superficial. Well, here we are. Won't you come in? Only if you believe that that will compromise you. I withdraw the invitation. Oh, what an admirable character you have, Kendall. Well, perhaps I should be getting back to my apartment anyway. Monica and Austin should be in each other's arms by now, and I should get home before their passion advances to the point of breaking their engagement again. Uh, hello, children. Oh, sorry. We're awfully glad you came back before we left, because now we can tell you. Tell me what? Monica and I are going to be married after all. Well, congratulations. May I kiss the bride, Austin? You keep away from me. Austin, I want to go now. Hello. Ken? Hey, darling, my little scheme works. Yes, they're going to be married. Uh, no, no, look. You know, we ought to take them out tomorrow night to celebrate. Well, just leave the arrangements to me. I'll see you then. Goodbye. Story. Monica, what are you doing here? I shook Austin. I had to come back and talk to you, Story. Oh, Monica. Monica. You little fool. Oh, Monica, darling. Story. Now, whatever made me do that? Every bit of feeling that you've been pretending you haven't got, Story. Monica, I... What? Uh, would you mind going to the other side of the room? Very much. Would you mind not looking at your watch? Uh, Monica, here, I have a proposition to make to you. I hope so. I propose that you turn around, march out the door, get a taxi, and go home. <laughs> You just say that because you're afraid of the alternative. Oh, no, no, I'm not. No, you are. You are, Story. You just say that because that you don't know yourself what the alternative is. <laughs> what is it? Just this. Story. Story, leave me alone. Story, don't. Story, put me down. Where are you taking me? Well, I'm sure you'll find a taxi downstairs, Monica. Story, you're hot. a nice place for the celebration story. Yes, an old place like a nightclub to celebrate an engagement or to lay the groundwork for a divorce. <laughs> Let's toast the happy couple. Austin, Monica, to your married life. May it be like the good prose of the English masters, solid, clear, sometimes hovering close to poetry, but in the main, sensible and intelligent and well-behaved. Nice toast story. I don't think it's nice at all. I certainly don't want that kind of marriage. What kind do you want, Monica? I'd like my marriage to be always like fine poetry, thrilling and exciting and lovely. That's a large order. I suppose you mean that only you could fill it, story. Why, Austin? I think we'd better dance. Monica, Austin, wouldn't you like to dance? You dance with Monica. Perhaps you'd better, story. All right, fine. Monica? You dance well, Monica. You lead well, Story. What's the matter with Austin? Maybe he senses that I'm in love with you. Don't say that again, Monica. Story, 
Why did you send me away last night? For your own good? No. You were afraid to be alone with me. You were afraid you'd tell me you loved me. All right. I was afraid to tell you that I love you. You can tell me now. There's a crowd around. I do love you, Monica. Tell me. Tell me. You're rare and exquisite. You're never out of my mind. Your sadness, your youth, your laughter. You know, when you laugh, it's like the beginning of the world before sorrow and death came. Darling. Oh, I am old. Old? You're not? Oh, I am. There's someone else inside of me, a second man. A cynical, odious person who keeps watching me, who keeps listening to what I say, grinning and sophisticated and horrid. He never lets me be this other man. Kill him. I can't kill him. He'll outlive me. I'll kill him for you. You can't. Even now he's looking at me. He's mocking me. He's saying, you fool talking nonsense to this girl, pretending that you want her above everything. You're making love to her because words come easily to you. But you really wouldn't get up early in the morning for her. You just like to touch her because she's young and lovely. Story, darling, I know you're fine and decent. Oh, yes. He hears you say I'm fine and decent, and he says the illusions of an adolescent of a love-struck girl. I'll beat him, Story. I'll beat him. I wish you could. Oh, I just needed to know that you love me. Tell me it again. Let me hear you say it again. I love you. No, the way you said it before. But I can't now, Monica. I'm afraid the second man is in full control again. Monica, not nicer. I said nicer. Now, don't fight. Very unbecoming when women fight. Some man always gets hurt. Let him fight, sorry. Let you and I fight. Why, Austin, why do you want to fight me? Let's all fight. I say this place is nicer because it's noisier. And I say I hate story, and I say we ought to have a good fight. You call this noisy? What did you say? You call this noisy? Yes, don't you? I can't hear. I said this place isn't noisy. Come on back to my house. I've got a noisy refrigerator. <laughs> I don't see why we had to come back to your apartment, Story. <laughs> it's because Story doesn't ever like to admit that a party's over. <laughs> I came to be with Story. Who are all you others? <laughs> I'm the man you're going to marry, remember? <laughs> don't answer, Monica. In vino veritas. What does that mean? It means that when you're tight, you tell your real name. <laughs> wonderful idea. Wonderful. Everybody tell absolute truth. All right, Monica. You might begin by telling why you lied to me last night. Huh? You told me you were going downtown. You came back here. Sure, I came back. What of it? I suspected something. When she told me to go on alone, I came back and I saw her go in. I hung around in the street. Oh, let's not play truth. Let, uh, let's tell fairy tales. Let's pretend story loves me. Wait, I... wait a minute, Ken. Austin, you hung around in the street, you? Yes, I did was all I could do to keep from bursting in on you. I hated you, Story. I hate you now. Why? Because I saw Monica coming in here. 
going to you. I saw her looking up to you with love in her eyes. I saw... I wanted you to die. Well, love reduces everybody to a common denominator. <laughs> Here's Austin Lowe, whose knowledge makes him one man in ten million, and yet he stands in the street looking up at the window and wanting to kill me because I'm kissing a girl. Austin, you're a Zulu. I suppose you're so darn civilized. I know, not at all. When you told me Monica was going to marry you, I felt a pang of resentment, too. Oh, you admit it. Oh, it didn't spring from love of you, Monica. I felt, why does he deserve her? I felt an impulse to take her away from you, Austin. But this is a very interesting story. No, no, it's not that I'm in love with Monica. Liar. I'm not having a very good time here. I'm going home. Yes, yes, that's right, Austin. Let's leave Monica and story alone. Why don't you? Go ahead, why don't you? Because I'm afraid I'd spend a sleepless night. Oh, no, 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 listen here. Monica, if you married me, you'd be happy for a year and unhappy the rest of your life. With Austin, you'll be unhappy for a year and happy the rest of your life. <laughs> it sounds delightful. <laughs> Maybe I ought to marry Austin. Well, Matt Ramon, really, he's as secure as the gilt edge bond. Good. Uh, what do you say, Austin? I say I'm in love with Monica. I'm out of love stories. Well, don't weep over him. I'll take you on. <laughs> I accept you. Not because you're worthy, but because I can't help you. Yeah, everybody, she accepts me. No. No. Yes, Monica. Well, then there's something I'm going to say. Everybody's telling the truth. Why shouldn't I? Well, I have an idea. This isn't going to what, be the what truth. What is it, Monica? Think, child. I'm going to tell. Something tells me we shouldn't listen. I'm going to tell. All of you, listen. I want you to know that story, story is the father of my child, my unborn child. <laughs> curtain rises on Act Three of The Second Man, starring Alfred Lunter's story, Jesse Royce Landis as Kendall, Peggy Conklin as Monica, and Paul McGrath as Austin. Once again, it is quiet in the apartment of Clark's story, but once again, it is not because the place is uninhabited. It is 15 minutes since Monica made her startling announcement. It took exactly 13 minutes for Austin and Mrs. Frame to speak their indignant minds and leave. And for the past two minutes, Clark, Story, and Monica have been staring at each other. Somebody has to break this silence. I had no idea they'd make such a fuss, Story. What did you expect? Congratulations? I guess I didn't think. Story... Don't you want me? No. I won't let you go, Story. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to bring you back to the youth that you've let go. But I don't want to go back. I can't go back. It's such a little distance, Story. Is it? These things you're selling yourself for, what good are they? Story, darling, I can see such a fine way we might live. Tell you it wouldn't work, Monica. I can see us now, five years from now, in a cheap flat. You looking blousy with little wrinkles under your eyes, and I in cheap shirts and cracked shoes, brooding in a room over the corpse of my genius. <laughs> you can't have life on your terms, Monica. I can't. Nobody can. I see I can't, anyway. 
Your brutally clear story. Oh, I'll marry you, Monica. But the joke's on you. Who's that? Oh, all right, I'm coming. I'm coming. Whoever you are, what are you doing up before 11? I'm coming. Well, Austin. Hello. Sit down, Austin. Sit down. You've obviously been out in the rain. Yes. What doing? Walking. Oh, but my dear fellow, you shouldn't be doing that. You're ill. This isn't a friendly visit story. No? I've come to kill you. Oh, my dear Austin, you are ill. That's why I've come. I tell you there isn't any reason on earth why you should kill me. No reason. Last night was as unreal as a nightmare. Oh, don't deny anything. It only makes you more hateful. Today, Monica will probably tell you herself it was a lie. Nothing can save you, Story. My dear chap, let me get you a cup of tea. Don't you laugh at me. There. Uh, is uh, that gun loaded? Why do you think I brought it? Did you go home for that thing? <laughs> well, you needn't have. I, I have one upstairs. I'll lend it to you. You don't believe I'll do it. That's why you're so flippant. Oh, I suppose you will. I suppose at the threshold of the great unknown, as they call it, I should be some. Words. Well, of course, a habit. I'm sorry. You press that thing, no more words. Death is probably very commonplace. Disintegration, resolution into original elements. That's your province, Austin. Talker. Well, I can't help it, old man. It will wag. Not a real emotion. Not a real feeling, even now. Well, real emotions and real feelings are destructive. I've learned to do without them. That's uh -huh. civilization. The old boat. Well, it's true. Now, you're in the grip of a real emotion, a real feeling. And what's it doing to you? Now, no, no, no. Now, well, listen a second. If you could empty your heart of its burden as easily as you can empty the cylinder there, well, there'd be some sense in curving your finger. But after I'm lying there, silent for once, will you be any happier? The world will be better off without you. Well, now, don't pretend this is a crusade. <laughs> you want to shoot me because you think Monica's belong to me. No matter what the reason, I can't enjoy your living. That I can understand. Uh, have you made any plans for the future? What's it to you? Well, it's curious. First you, then myself. Both of us. Oh, that is rather a pity. You know, you will be a loss to the community. You might discover something perfectly tremendous, a cure for cancer, an escalator to Mars, Austin. Oh, uh, do you mind not pointing that at me? I admit it makes me rather nervous. Have you nothing else to say? Uh, oh, <laughs> one last speech. Oh, dear me. Well, <clears throat> I can't think of a thing. Isn't it funny? Now, I'd like to say something brilliant. I can't. I've often wondered how all those great men engineered their deathbed speeches. Made them up in advance, I bet. Oh, no, 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 wait, wait. Wait, don't shoot, don't shoot. I've thought of something. Say it quick. His last words were, give my love to Monica. That's enough! Oh, oh, good heavens, good heavens. Oh, no, no, don't feel bad, old fellow. You nick the table. You won't miss me next time. <laughs> I, I'm no good at this sort of thing. Well, I don't mind. <laughs> uh, Sierra, Austin, what, what, what you need is a, is, a, is a drink and rest. Now, lots of rest. I am tired, Story, so tired. Now, Austin, look. Now, you go into my bedroom. You lie down while I fix you a nice, stiff drink. Thanks, Story. Thanks very much. Now, Austin, wait, wait a minute. Yes? I'll just take care of that gun, Austin. <laughs> It's delightful to see you. I scarcely expected to after last night. Do I smell gunpowder? Yes, Austin Lowe. He came to kill me and remained to take a nap. 
Poor fellow. I like that, the poor fellow. Well, what about me? You deserve it. You mean on account of what Monica said last night? Now, Kendall, even if it were true. Now, don't deny it, Story. Spare me that. I came to say goodbye. Goodbye? Yes, I'm going to South America. When? Probably on the 10th, on the Clipper. They'll give me time to get my passports. I tell you sol solemnly that what Monica said last night isn't true. Don't stoop to that story. Monica must love you very much to confess before everybody the way she did last night. You don't know the half of it. It's Monica I came to talk to you about, really. Yes. At first, I suppose it'll be a little hard for you, economically. Especially if you mean to do serious work. So I... Well, I thought perhaps... You want to give us money to start the new life on? Well, I have so much and I'm alone. It's an excellent idea. <laughs> but I'm afraid Monica wouldn't see it. She needn't know. Would you have us both start the new life on a lie? Always laugh. Well, why not? Isn't life amusing? Kendall, you and I might have lived a civilized life. You have the two great requirements for the wife of a poor but intelligent man. Money and tolerance. Unfortunately, my tolerance doesn't extend to this. This, as you call it, is a lie. It doesn't exist. Goodbye, Story. Oh, no, don't go, Ken. Goodbye, Story. Kendall, you can't leave me like this. You can't run away. You can't believe that ridiculous lie. Really, you can't. Apparently, she can. <laughs> my child. Uh, how are you? I'm glad I ran into you. I, I tried calling you. I wanted to see you. I was at Stories. I went there to say goodbye to him. Goodbye? Yes, I'm going to South America. I shall be gone a long time. Oh, but you needn't go. My dear child. And you needn't call me a child. I'm old now. All of a sudden? Yes. What's aged you? Never mind, but I tell you sincerely, if it's on my account, you needn't go. What inspires this mood of renunciation? It's not renunciation. It's indifference. Indifference? Yes, I'm on my way now to tell Story that I don't love him. <laughs> I went to tell him that once. I stayed, though. Mrs. Frayne, I must tell you that what I said last night wasn't true. Thanks, but one doesn't invent that sort of lie. Mrs. Frayne, I don't want Story. Monica. It's true. <laughs> what are you laughing at? I never thought I'd have to say poor Story. But I have to know. Why? Because I don't want him either. Oh, hello, Monica. Hello, Story. Sit down, won't you? Thanks. Monica, last night after you left, I had two hours of introspection. So did I. I've been wrong about a number of things. I'd like to live in a little cottage with you. Now, Story, really. I mean it, Monica. But will you change it all? I'll try to be what you think of me. Thank you. Don't you believe me? What? Don't you believe me that I'll try? What's the matter? What are you staring at me for? I'm trying to discover why I ever loved you. Well, don't you know? No. Because last night I saw you as you really are. A fat thing lolling in an armchair with a brain ticking inside like a clock. I am not fat, Monica. Your body isn't and your brain isn't, but your soul is, Story. I see it all now. You stand in front of me and it doesn't mean a thing. Oh, don't talk like that. I'll fall in love with you. 
You're too clever for me, Story. Your emotions are too complicated. Oh, I wish I were like Austin. His emotions are as simple as a child's. No second man peering over his shoulder. He's a darling. The darling almost shot me this morning. Shot you? He came here in a simple, uncomplicated mood. He's a rotten shot. Where'd he go? He's taking a nap. Well, how is he? Feverish. He's been up all night, walking in the rain. We ought to have a doctor. I don't think so. Champagne and jealousy. What did he say? Well, he was incoherent. Had an idea. He ought to avenge your honor, I suppose. Acted like a moving picture hero and talked like an idiot, if there's any difference between the two. Well, didn't you tell him that what I said last night... Of course I told him, but he wouldn't believe me. Nobody will believe the truth now. Really, Monica. Think what he must have gone through to want to do that. Hey, can you imagine a trial if he'd succeeded? Wouldn't the newspapers love it? Scientist kills writer over woman, following an all-night champagne party and clock stories, luxurious each side apartment, the night of licentiousness, and you on the witness stand. Hey, what would you say? Would you tell them the truth, that you lied to save me for myself to prevent me from making a mercenary marriage? But if you did that, you'd deprive the defense of a case. You'd send Austin to the chair. Story, you're dreadful. And even if you said it was true, there might be difficulties. The prosecution would want proof beyond your statement. I believe you said you were the mother of my unborn child. Well, Monica, they'd want the child. Monica, you'd have to produce a child. Oh, Monica. Austin, darling. I thought you were asleep. He's ill. Story, I'm going now. You are not. Why, he's feverish. Austin, sit down. I'll, I'll get you something to drink. Monica. Yes? Did Story tell you what I... Yes, he told me. You must know everything. I must tell you everything. You must know why I made up my mind to kill him. It wasn't alone because I hated him, but because I wanted to hurt you, Monica. I know. But all the time, I... It's hard for me to explain. I loved you. You were inside of me. I was desperate to tear you out. I see now I can't do it. I'll, I'll never do it. I have no existence apart from you. Austin, you needn't try to explain yourself to me. I understand you. I understand you very well. My trouble is, how can I make you understand that what I said last night wasn't true? Not true? How can I make you understand that it's all over now? That last night, yesterday, I loved story. But today, I don't. I, I believe you. You don't owe me explanations, but Monica. But I want you to know everything that's in my thoughts, Austin. I still feel a pain about Story, even now. But it isn't for him. It's for the feeling I had for him, that it should have been wasted. That feeling that will never come again, that can't come again. I suppose I'm luckier than you, Monica, because mine remains. Austin, are you sorry? Oh, Monica... You here, close to me. It's like being alive for the first time. No, here's your tally. I had it finished five minutes ago, but I drank it and made another. Uh, here, Austin. I don't need it now, Story, thanks. We're just leaving together, Story. Oh? Yes. I'm sorry, Story. Well, bless you, my children. Uh, thanks. Coming, Monica? Yes. Goodbye, Story. Well, that's what I always told you to do. It's the best for all of us, isn't it? I think so, Story. Goodbye. Well, that's what I always told you, though. Hello? Uh, is Mrs. Frayne there? Oh, hello, Kendall. Story. I'm frightfully low, Kendall. You've got to come over and cheer me up. She's gone. Certainly with Austin. 
Well, we'll dance at their wedding, Kendall. Uh, well, what about dinner? Uh, busy, uh. Uh, what, uh, oh, packing. Uh, oh, let's, let's have dinner together. I, 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 I haven't had a chance to say goodbye decently yet. Uh, Ken, I, I've never known you to be so stubborn. In, in common justice, you ought to take me back until Austin and Monica... Well, that's the very least you can do. And Kendall, I promise you, I absolutely promise you that if their baby bears the slightest resemblance to me... Oh, oh you're laughing, huh? You're laughing. Uh, no, no, no. Why, why should you? No, 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 no. Keep your passport and we'll get another. Yes, of course. Oh, no, it's lovely this time of year. You know, we'll fly to Rio and then Mora Inland. Oh, it's a heavenly trip. You know, one of... Uh, sure. For the Theatre Guild on the air includes Homer Fickett, director, George Condolph, producer, and Armina Marshall, executive director of the radio department. Music for tonight's play was composed and conducted by Harold Levy, and the play adapted for radio by Kenyon Nicholson. Your announcer, Norman Brokenshire. Theater Guild on the Air emphasized a natural style of dialogue. It was a specialty of Alfred Lunt and wife Lynn Fontaine. Lunt starred there as the ultimately jilted Clark Story, and Paul McGrath, best known as your host in the Inner Sanctum, starred as Austin in that bedroom comedy, The Second Man. Theater Guild on the Air from February 3, 1946. Love and Money played before a studio audience. Next, we offer you Escape here on Skywave Audio Theater. Now you get a chance to brush up on your French. Spoiler alert, if you do know French, you'll likely have the solution to the mystery about a missing person. We take you to Paris in that landmark year of 1889, the year that brought the Eiffel Tower, among the other highlights of Western culture, An exciting time and place, but like many tourists, the ones we're about to meet are at a disadvantage because they don't speak the language of the land. It won't be all silver tea services and panoramic views. Our story is called The Vanishing Lady. It's escaped from February 7, 1948. Paris, unable to speak the language, unable to cope with a gigantic conspiracy 
which seeks to convince you that you are mad. And you know you are the victim of a plot from which there is no escape. Escape. Produced and today written by William N. Robeson and carefully contrived to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Today, we escape to Paris at the time of the Great Paris Exposition and one of the recurring legends of the 20th century in Alexander Wolcott's version of the story of the vanishing lady. Another cup of tea, Bruce. No, no, thank you, my dear. I'll just light up my pipe now and have a look at the evening standard. I'd like another, please, Mother. All right, Alice. Uh, uh, uh. Only one sugar, dear. We must watch our figures, you know. Oh, what nonsense. A growing girl like Alice needs plenty of sugar. See, Mother, Daddy approves. Perhaps. But Mother is still boss. Yes, Mother. There's a dear. Mother. Yes, dear. I've been thinking. Yes, dear? I've been thinking about my grandparents. Oh. I know all about Daddy's parents. How Grandfather Stanley commanded a dreadnought at the Battle of Jutland. It was not a dreadnought, Alice. It was a heavy cruiser. Yes, heavy cruiser. <laughs> he got the VC and how Grandmother Stanley was a volunteer nurse at Western Arch when the Zeppelins came over. And I know about your father, too, and how he died in India from his wounds and how gallant he was at the Khyber Pass. But, Mother? Yes, dear. You've never, never told me anything about Grandmother Winship. Haven't I? No, and I'd like to know something. Bruce. The child's 16. I think it's time she knew. But, Bruce... And you'd probably feel better to get it off your chest. What, Mother? What is it? Well, my dear, I've never talked about your grandmother because I've always half believed that Someday, somehow, she'd come down our garden walk and... Oh, I know it sounds silly. And explain where she's been for the last 20 years. Why? What happened to I her? I don't know, and I don't suppose I ever will. Cynthia, darling, if it's going to upset no, you... No, Bruce, you're quite right. It would be best to get it off my chest, as you put it. As you know, Alice, I was born and brought up in India... And I was about your age when my father was killed in the Kuiper campaign. Mother decided to leave India for good and return to her old home in Warwickshire. However, since it was necessary for her to go to Paris to attend to some details of my father's estate, she decided we should leave the P&O boat in Marseille and proceed by train. You may imagine the timidity with which we two unescorted ladies traveled across France without the slightest knowledge of the language and without, indeed, assurance we could find a hotel room in Paris, though we had telegraphed for reservations for Marseille. You see, dear, the great Paris exposition had just opened and the city was jammed with visitors from all over the world. You may imagine our relief when we arrived at the Grand Hotel Universel 
and heard the clerk speak in quite understandable English. Welcome, welcome. Uh, you will please to sign the register. You have our reservation. Oh, indeed, yes. Well, most fortunate, madame, that you telegraphed. Uh, I reserve for you the last room in the house. Oh, I'm so relieved. Yes, Cynthia. You may as well learn now to sign a register for yourself. Oh, yes, Mama. Where do I write? There in that line. Oh, yes, I see. Voila. You are uh, fatigued from your journey, no? I shall have the boy show you to your rooms at once. Chasseur! Chasseur! Oui, monsieur. L'appartement 342 pour madame et mademoiselle Winship, tout de suite. Um, bien, monsieur. Uh, this is your bagage, madame? Uh, yes, these six. La voilà le bagage, Cynthia. il y a six pièces. Entendu. You'd best carry the little one with the medicine in it? Yes, mama. Permettez-moi, mademoiselle. Uh, thank you. I'll take that one. Uh, the little red one? Uh, très bien. Uh, this way, ladies. Keep your eye on that porter, Cynthia. I don't trust this Frenchman. Oh, Mama. I don't think he'll make off with our things. Oh, here's the lift. Troisième étage. Troisième. Oh, I do wish we could have gone straight on to Southampton. But you'd only have had to come back across the channel to see the solicitor, Mama. We really saved time this way. I suppose, I mean, I wish we hadn't come to Paris at all. Such a sinister place. Oh, Mama. Voilà, le troisième. Uh, this way, ladies, to the right. Attendez. C'est bien. 338, 343, 340. Oh, voilà. Entrez, ladies. Thank you. Oh, what a lovely big room. And look, Mama, French windows. Oh, and the park out there. And and that square with the statues. Uh, the ladies desire. No, thank you. Yeah. Merci. Oh, no, thank you, those ladies. Those beautiful, beautiful bridges. Oh, Mama, it, it's like something out of a book. Yes, my dear. That's the trouble with Paris. It's so attractive. But underneath, it's evil. Oh, and Mama, the furniture, the gilt clock, and this lovely marble top table. Oh, Mama, everything is so. <laughs> So French! I'll be very glad to be on my way to where everything's English by this time tomorrow. Now, come away from that window and help me get into something comfortable. There's a dear. Yes, Mama, of course. I don't know when I've been so tired. I, I just can't seem to catch my... Mama. <laughs> Mama, what's the matter? Mama. Mama, speak to me. Oh, here, I'll get you up into bed. There. Now, let me loosen your corset. Here, Mama, here are the smelling salts. Breathe deeply, darling. Mama. The telephone. I've got to get a doctor. Uh, hello, operator. Will you please send a doctor up to room number... Uh, let me see. Number 342. Pardon? Will you please send a doctor to room number 342? A, a doctor, a doctor, please. Ah, oui, a doctor. Oui, mademoiselle, tout de suite. While I waited for the doctor, I did everything I could think of to bring my mother back to consciousness. I massaged her fingers and toes. I put wet cloths on her forehead. I waved the smelling salts under her nose. But she lay silent and white and unmoving, like one dead. Only the quick, shallow movement of her breast assured me she was not. And all the time, another anxiety possessed me. 
What if this doctor could not speak English? How should I tell him the circumstances of mother's unexpected fainting? How should I understand his instructions for treatment? I'm sure it was not long, although it seemed like an eternity before he arrived, accompanied by the manager of the hotel. And to my great relief, they both spoke English. The doctor felt mother's pulse, took her temperature, and did the usual things that doctors do. And then he turned to the tail-coated hotel manager. La jeune femme parle-t-elle français? Pas un mot. Vous en êtes sûr? Tout à fait. Alors, je peux parler à mon aise. Monsieur, ceci, c'est une affaire très sérieuse. N'ayez pas l'air alarmé lorsque je vous mets au courant. Cette femme est atteinte de la peste. La peste? Elle n'a qu'une heure à vivre. Je n'ai pas besoin de vous dire que si ceci se connaît, votre hôtel perdra tous ses clients. Ils m'ont tué par ce mot. While they talked in this language, I couldn't understand. I looked from one face to the other, trying to read from their expressions how serious my mother's illness was. But they were as casual as though they were ordering dinner. And finally, I could stand it no longer. Oh, you must tell me. What is the matter with her? Mademoiselle, your mother is ill, yes. Seriously ill. It is a collapse, due perhaps to the strain of traveling. However, a week or two of absolute rest will work wonders. A week wonders. or two? Well, we were to go on to England tomorrow. Uh, that would be out of the question, mademoiselle. She cannot be moved for at least several days. Uh, right now, she must have complete rest. The next 24 hours will be critical. Oh, Mama. Poor Mama. No, 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 Mademoiselle, you must not break down too. I need your help. Yes, Doctor. Immediately, I need some medicine. Will you fetch it for me? Why, I must not yes. leave your mother for a moment during these critical hours. Here, I will write down this address and a little message to my wife. Your wife? Yes, yes. I have the medicine already prepared at home. It will be faster to go there for it than to a pharmacy. There are very few chemists who have the ingredient. But couldn't you telephone? Alas, uh, I have no telephone. Well, a messenger, perhaps. <laughs> Mademoiselle does not know Paris en fait. Uh, with the exposition opening, nowhere can you find a reliable messenger. They are all selling uh, souvenirs. But, uh, oh, no, Mademoiselle. You will accomplish here and more rapidly yourself. Uh, here is the address. 24 bis rue Val-de-Grâce. And here is the message to give to my wife. But uh, I don't know Paris at all. I'm a total stranger here. I am sure the manager here will give the... Uh, Necessary instructions to the cabbie. Indeed, I will. Now, if Mademoiselle is ready... Before I quite knew what was happening, I was seated in a rickety taxi cab outside the hotel with the doctor's message clutched in my hand, while the hotel manager gave Maintenant, valuable directions to the cabbie. En plus, vous toucherez un pourbois assez grand pour remplacer cette vieille bagnole avec une belle voiture. Allez au petit pas. Prenez la, la, la piste la plus circuiteuse et surtout, ne soyez pas de retour en moins de deux heures. Entendu Entendu. Bon, it is arranged, mademoiselle. Jacques is one of our most trusted cabbies. He will get you to the doctor's house and back in safety. Oh, thank you so much, sir. And you will look after mother, won't you? Indeed, I will. Of that, you may be sure. When we left the hotel, we crossed a huge square with statues around it and turned into a wide avenue which led up a gentle incline, at the top of which was a huge arch. But before long, we turned off to the right into narrower streets. It must have been 20 minutes later when we turned into another wide boulevard and I saw another huge arch up ahead. Or was it the same arch? Driver! Mademoiselle! 
Haven't we passed that arch before? Regardez, mademoiselle, voici l'arc de triomphe, là-bas la tour Eiffel. Driver, I don't want a sightseeing tour. I want to go to this address directly. Don't you understand? Now, please take me there at once. Eh ben, on fait de son mieux. De la patience, mademoiselle. Paris, c'est une grande ville, voyons. At last, we turned into a narrow street and pulled up before a grim grey house. The blue enamel sun on the wall read number 24 bis. I jumped out of the cab almost before it stopped, rushed up the three stone steps and pulled at the brass bell knob. Oh, hurry, 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 please. We? Oh, oh the, the doctor sent me for some medicine. Here, read this, please. Retenez cette jeune femme aussi longtemps possible. C'est de la plus grande importance pour l'avenir de Paris et même de la France. Oh, entrez, mademoiselle. Thank you. Quand vous ne pouvez plus la faire attendre, donnez-lui une bouteille de pastilles. The doctor's wife stood there reading and rereading the note as though she didn't understand it. And until I thought I would scream. Please, please hurry. Get me the medicine. It's my mother. She may be dying. I must get back to her. Please hurry. Asseyez-vous. She pointed to a chair. Attendez. And slowly walked down the hall and closed the door behind her. I waited and waited. And I wondered. Wondered about the time the taxi had taken to get here. About that arch that looked so familiar. And I was torn by the hundred nameless anxieties that torture you when your nearest and dearest is ill. And then I heard something that froze my blood. A telephone. A telephone clearly ringing somewhere in the house. But the doctor had said he had no telephone. That was the reason I must come all this way for the medicine. Oh, no, it, it couldn't be in this house. It must be next door or across the street. Of course, that's where the sound was coming from. Hello? But no. It was the voice of the doctor's wife answering the phone. Oh, no. No, what monstrous plot was this? I felt my scalp crawl with terror. My brain pounded and my head felt as though it would burst. I wanted to scream, to run out of this awful house, to run all the way across Paris to the bedside of my mother. Voilà, mademoiselle. <gasps> oh, thank you. Thank you. Au revoir, mademoiselle. Now, driver, please, please, in the name of your own mother, hurry back to the hotel as fast as possible, please. Ah, oui. En fait, son mieux, mademoiselle. But my pleading was of no use. Either it was misunderstood or ignored. We crawled across Paris, just as slowly as we had come. And I was certain I saw that same white arch three times. But at last we crossed the great square with the statues. And I knew we were close to the hotel. Oh, please, please hurry. Zut, on fait de son mieux, mademoiselle, voyons. Just beyond the great square, we turned up a narrow street which shortly entered a wide circle, in the middle of which was a tall, slender monument. The driver swung around the monument and pulled up before the entrance of the hotel, reached back and opened the door. <coughs> I jumped out of the cab. And then I saw the sign over the entrance. It said, Hotel Ritz. Driver? Driver, you've taken me to the wrong hotel. I'm staying at the Grand Hotel Universal. Mais non, mademoiselle, je vous ai pris au Ritz. 
Je vous dépose au riz. No, I, I don't understand what you're saying, but will you please take me to the Grand Hotel Universal? C'est ici que je vous ai pris en charge et c'est ici que je vous le Oh, you stupid, stupid man, can't you understand? My mother is sick. You've taken more than two hours to get me to the doctor's house and back. Can't you understand? My mother is sick, perhaps dying. Les affaires de mademoiselle ne me regardent pas. I looked around me. A small group of passers-by had stopped and were listening curiously to the argument. And then they joined in, taking sides. Everywhere I looked were foreign faces. Strangers, enemies. And then, shouldering through the crowd, I saw a bareheaded young man in tweeds, with a pipe clamped in his teeth. And before he had a chance to speak, I knew help had come. I say, having some trouble. Oh, thank heavens, you're English. Right you are. Now what seems to be the matter? I told him as rapidly as I could. And he paid the mulish cabbie. He popped me into another cab. Five minutes later, we walked up into the lobby of the Grand Hotel Universel. The manager was behind the desk. My mother, is she all right? I beg your pardon, mademoiselle. My mother, Mrs. Winship in 342, is she all right? <laughs> there is no uh, Madame Winship in 3242. What? 342 is occupied by Monsieur Auguste Noailles, a permanent guest. But don't you remember me? I'm Cynthia Winship. Two hours ago, you put me into a taxi to go to the doctor's house for some medicine for my mother. I am afraid that Mademoiselle is mistaken. I have never seen her before in my life. Well, look here, what is this? No, listen, I swear to you. It's just as I say. We signed the register less than three hours ago. We got in on the train from Marseille. Well, let's have a look at the register. Yes. I'll show you I'm in 342. Where is the register? It is there, mademoiselle. You may see it for yourself. See, today's date. 14 guests registered, but I do not see any mademoiselle or madame Winship. Do you? No. What have you done with my mother? Please, what have you done with my mother? I demand you answer you me please, this mademoiselle, minute. Mademoiselle, I, what have you done like, I should not Ms. like Winship. to have to ask you to leave. Miss Winship, please. We get to the bottom of this. Perhaps Mademoiselle is mistaken. Perhaps she is registered at some other hotel. No. This is the hotel. The Grand Universal. You... You were standing there when we arrived. You handed my mother the pen with which she registered. You came to the door with a doctor. You put me in a taxi. But I assure you, Mademoiselle, these are fantastic. Wait a minute. Your oh, what is it? Uh, that is boy there. He carried our baggage. He'll remember. Uh, garçon. Uh, oui, monsieur. Vous vous de avoir porté le bagage de Madame à numéro 342 cet après-midi. No, monsieur. Uh, there were six pieces, don't you remember? You wanted to take them all, and I insisted on carrying the little jewel case. It was a little red one. Oh, no, mademoiselle. C'est la première fois de ma vie que je vois mademoiselle. He says he never saw you in his life before. But this is monstrous. It, it's impossible. My mother is somewhere in this hotel. What have you done with her? What have you done with her? <laughs> Feeling better now, Miss Winship? A little, thank you. Care for something else? No, thank you. Uh, another cup of tea, perhaps? Certainly. Garçon? Monsieur? Uh, un tasse de thé pour mademoiselle. Tout de suite, monsieur. I... I don't know how to thank you, Mr... You realize I, I, I don't even know your name? Oh, <laughs> it's Bruce. Bruce Stanley. I'm very glad to meet you, Mr. Stanley. It's a pleasure, Miss Winship. Mr. Stanley, you believe me, well, don't you? Of course I do, Miss We did Winship. register at that hotel. We were in room 342. I can even describe the furnishings. There was a big window that went from the ceiling to the floor. Well, every hotel room in Paris has windows like that, Miss Winship. Oh, they do? Yes. 
Well, in this room, the draperies were plum-colored, and there was a marble-top table, black marble it was, and a gilt clock it had run down. The hands had stopped, I remember, at 20 minutes past three. The walls were covered in rose brocade, and the bedspread was a washed-out yellow. Oh, if I could only get into that room, you'd see that I'm not making this up. I'm well, I, not... I'm sure you aren't. Perhaps I can find a way to make them let you in the room. Can you? Yes. Uh, I'm with the embassy, you know, undersecretary sort of thing. I believe the British Empire has enough influence to change the mind of an obstinate Paris innkeeper. Well, then let's do it. Right away. Well, I'm afraid the might of Britain can't move that fast. It's past dinner time. But, but tomorrow we shall see. Tomorrow? But I must get into that room tonight. I... I have no money. Nowhere to sleep. Well, we can do nothing with the people at the hotel. You saw that. We'll just have to be patient until tomorrow. I'm sure I can find a room for you tonight in a pension near the embassy. You're so very kind. How can I ever thank you, Mr. Stanley? Well, you, you might begin by calling me Bruce. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Cynthia. Oh. What oh, is it? I, I just thought of something. The doctor. The doctor? Yes, the one the hotel manager brought in to look after Mother. I still have his address somewhere here in my purse. Yes, here it is. Now, we must go there immediately. He can tell us about Mother. Well, let me see. 24 bis Rue Val de Gras. Well, that's not far. Just off Boulevard Raspail near the Luxembourg. Well, how long would it take to get there by taxi? Oh, about ten minutes. But it... It took over an hour this afternoon. Well, here we are. Yes, this is the place. Attendez, mon vieux. The house is dark. Well, it's quite late. Well, I don't care. We've got to find out tonight. Where is he? There, at the upstairs window. Uh, Monsieur le docteur, cette mademoiselle Winship. Elle veut vous questionner à propos de sa mère. Winship, je ne connais pas mademoiselle Winship. He says he doesn't know you. But he must. He must. It... Doctor, don't you remember this afternoon? You sent me here to your house for medicine for my mother. Je ne comprends pas l'anglais. He says he doesn't understand English. Oh, the liar. The dreadful liar. He does. He speaks perfect English. Et vous, jeune homme, je vous conseille de ne pas déranger le repos des gens comme il faut et de vous en aller avant que je n'appelle la police. Uh, I'm sorry, Cynthia. Oh, Bruce. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? If it hadn't been for Bruce, I'm certain I should have gone out of my mind. He found a room for me at a pension near the embassy, where I spent a sleepless night of anxiety, almost beyond endurance. Bruce called for me at half past ten the next morning and took me back to the hotel. To my surprise, the attitude of the manager had changed completely. But of course, Mademoiselle may inspect room 342. We are only too glad to convince Mademoiselle that her mother is not and never was in the Grand Hotel Universel. Why, I... I, I personally will escort you to the room. This way, please, to the ascenseur. Oh, Bruce, that terrible man. That horrible, Shh, Cynthia, horrible... Cynthia, don't let him upset you. Monsieur, au troisième. Now, remember what I told you last night, Bruce. You'll see. Plum-colored draperies, 
Black marble top table, rose walls, and a gilt clock with hands stopped at 20 minutes past three. You'll see. Yes, Cynthia. Voila, le troisième. This way, please. It was room 342 that you wished to see, mademoiselle. Yes, that's right. Third door to the right. Parfait. You see, Bruce, I know where it is. Yes, my dear. Here we are. Voila. Enter, please. Now, Bruce, you'll see. The yellow bedspread. Oh. Not quite the room you just described in the elevator, mademoiselle. The drapes are royal blue. Oh. A little dusty, I fear. Uh, I must have this room renovated. You see, there is no marble top table. No. The clock, as you notice, is running. And right on time, it seems. And no. the walls are not rose brocade, but yellow flowered no. wallpaper. Now, my dear mademoiselle, you see how thoroughly mistaken you are. No, no, no! They had tried to make me think I was mad. They succeeded. I remembered nothing until I awoke in my aunt's house in England two weeks later, thanks to Bruce, who never left my side during those terrible days when my sanity hung in the balance. Well... That's the story, Alice. And that's why I've never been able to talk about your grandmother, Winship. Oh, Mother, how horrible. Because all these years I've clung to the foolish hope that somehow she'd come back and tell us herself what happened. You poor dear. You may as well dispel that hope forever, Cynthia. What? Since you've at last brought yourself to discuss your mother's disappearance, I think it's time you knew the true fact. Bruce. Your mother died 20 minutes after you left the hotel on that fool's errand for the doctor. Oh, no. She died of the bubonic plague. She had caught it in India before she sailed. The doctor recognized the symptoms the moment he examined her. He told the hotel manager in French in your presence. They agreed that the matter must be kept completely secret. If the news leaked out that there was a case of plague in Paris, the city would have been emptied of visitors, and the exposition would have been a failure. Oh, Bruce... The conspiracy of silence began in the hotel. The bellboy was paid to claim he never saw you. The taxi driver was paid well to take you to the doctor's house by the most roundabout route. The note to the doctor's wife advised her to detain you as long as she could. The taxi driver added his own imaginative touch by returning you to the Ritz instead of the Universal. I shudder to think what might have happened if I hadn't come through the Place Vendôme just then. But you didn't know? Not then. When did... You find out. Next morning. By then, the conspiracy had grown to international proportions. The embassy had been advised. If the exposition was a failure, the franc would fall and the pound sterling would be affected, that sort of thing, you know. I knew when we went back to the hotel, you would not find your plum drapes and rose-colored walls and black marble-top table. And you let me go through with it. What could I do? I was acting under orders. I knew that the hotel had completely fumigated and redecorated the room overnight, and everything was in readiness to repudiate your story. I had to let the last act of the dreadful farce play to its dreadful end. What did they do with my mother? Her body was removed from the room less than 30 minutes after you left it. It immediately burned. Why? Why didn't you tell me all this years ago? Why did you let me go on all this time? This, this is the first time you've ever mentioned your mother since then, my dear. Alice? Yes, Mother? 
There's a new issue of the Tatler in the library. Wouldn't you like to look at it? Mother, I want... Now, dear, there's a good girl. I want to have a talk with your father. Escape, produced by William N. Robeson and directed by Norman MacDonald, has brought you The Vanishing Lady by Alexander Wolcott, freely adapted for radio by Mr. Robeson. The part of Cynthia was played by Joan Banks. Bruce was played by High Everback. The hotel manager and driver by Ramsey Hill. Musical score was conceived by Cy Feuer with Eddie Dunstetter at the console. Next week... You are deathly afraid of snakes. And between you and a fortune, between you and escape, you're on the white jaws of a deadly cotton mouth. Next week, we escape with Irvin S. Cobb's famous story, Snake Doctor. Goodbye, then, until this same time next week, we, when we again offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Mystery Solved, The Mystery of the Vanishing Lady. That was the West Coast version of Escape from February 7th, 1948. And it was a popular story. The script was used later for Suspense on January 10th, 1950, and on Favorite Story, and on Suspense, April 7th, 1957. As for author Alexander Wolcott... The acerbic American was the inspiration for two fictional characters, Sheridan Whiteside, the caustic but charming main character in the 1939 hit play The Man Who Came to Dinner by George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart, which was made into a movie in 1942. The other character he inspired was the stuck-up colonist Waldo Lydecker in the novel and movie Laura. The poor grandmother could have used a powerful prescription, but not the one prescribed in our next story here on Skywave Audio Theater. It's suspense. A cabin near the beach, a flash in the night, and a novelist with an active imagination and an inclination to help, and perhaps a lack of principle, as it turns out. And then, of course, you have to add a dead man, a very recently dead man, all of it adds up to the makings of a good mystery for a novelist, but how far is she willing to follow the story to push it along? A question to be asked in the inner sanctum. Our story comes from February 5th, 1946, and now this way through the creaking door. Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup present Inner Sanctum Mysteries. Good evening, 
students of the mystic marvels of manifold murder, <laughs> this is your host, extending a cordial invitation to step through the creaking door of the inner sanctum, where we probe deep into the dark and cavernous depths of men's souls to see what makes them kill. Mm -hmm. Our clinic here is the whole vast world of crime. And you who listen in may hear us dissect our characters at a safe distance. And unless your nerves are strung, you'd better take my advice and uh, keep your distance. <laughs> Why, Mr. Host, that's not the kind of advice to give folks. It sounds unfriendly. Well, what would you suggest, Mary? Well, give them some sort of friendly advice. Like pointing out to them the extra delight they'll get from a cheering cup of Lipton tea. Then go on to tell them why Lipton's is so downright delicious. Tell them that the reason is Lipton's brisk flavor. And don't forget to mention that brisk is the tea expert's own word for the spirited, full-bodied flavor of Lipton's. So refreshing and so zestful. Explain that Lipton's brisk flavor is never flat, but always lively and, and satisfying. And in closing, remind them to try Lipton's soon. Because in every cup of Lipton's, there's extra enjoyment. And now, that's the kind of advice you should give, folks. Well, Mary, you seem to have given it to them already. So we can go ahead and get launched on Skeleton Bay. That's the title of tonight's story. An original radio play by Emil Tepperman. It's about a lady novelist, a writer of mystery stories. It opens at a swanky hotel with private cabins situated on a storm-swept rock-bound coast. The story itself is all about... Mm -hmm. You guessed it. Murder. And here's Betty Lou Gerson as Carol Winter, the lady novelist, who will give us a blow-by-blow -blow description. I'll tell you first about the night I met Michael Barrett. It was in August at Skeleton Bay... I'd come to the hotel supposedly for a rest. That was what I kept telling myself. But in reality, I didn't know why I'd come here. Skeleton Bay. I'd seen the name Skeleton advertised Bay. months ago. Skeleton Bay. Since then, it Skeleton kept hammering, Bay. hammering, hammering Skeleton at the inside Bay. of my brain. Skeleton it's like the voice Skeleton of implacable fate Skeleton commanding, Bay. commanding, Skeleton commanding. Bay. Skeleton Because I didn't like crowds, the hotel manager had given me a cabin near the beach all to myself. It was the middle of the night, but I couldn't sleep. The wind came in from the ocean, howling like a hungry beast across the shoals. And the pounding of the surf mingled with the angry battle growl of the sea. I sat at the window in the dark, staring out at the beach. I was restless, excited. It was then I saw the signal. It was just a winking little light a few yards away on the beach. Someone was blinking a flashlight on and off, on and off. I was able to make out the figure of a man in boots and a leather jacket. He was signaling toward the hotel. But to whom? I had the answer in a moment. A man moved past my window, going down toward the light. He had his collar turned up against the wind, his hat brim pulled low. But I knew who it was, Mr. Field. A small, furtive man who'd come up on the train with me. The two men met, barely a stone's throw from my window. I could hardly see them huddled closely together. This was excitement, mystery, intrigue, the stimulation I wanted and needed. 
had to know what was going on. I threw on a raincoat, opened the cabin door. The wind swept my hair in a streamer, and the spray stung my face as I hurried down the beach. My blood began to race, my heart to pound. For those two men were not engaged in any conference. They were locked in struggle. It was a deadly, silent struggle with only a grunt now and then. I saw the flashing gleam of a knife. I couldn't tell who had the weapon. The tall man in the leather jacket or the furtive Mr. Field. And then... Then I saw the blade plunge home. Into the throat of the furtive Mr. Field. I felt a sudden surge of wild elation. This was murder. I had witnessed murder. The tall man let the body of Mr. Field slide down to the sand. Then he looked up and saw me. He stood there with a bloody knife in his hand, and we looked at each other. Who are you? I'm Carola Winter. I have this cabin here, number five. You saw me kill him? Yes, I saw you. What are you going to do about it? I'm going to help you dispose of the body. He told me his name was Michael Barrett. He lived on the opposite side of the bay in the house high up on the cliff. It won't be so easy to get rid of the body. If I had the boat, I could take him out and drop him over, but it's too rough tonight. If there was some place to hide him for a day, I could come across in the boat tomorrow night. You can hide him in the closet in my cabin. Nobody will look there. Better lock the closet door. Yes, of course. You sure nobody will come snooping here? Nobody comes here but the maid. All right. I'll be back tomorrow night with the boat. Did you pick up the knife? Yeah. Got it in my pocket. Well, I guess that's all. Good night, Carola. Good night, Michael. All night I sat up alone with the locked closet door between me and the staring, sightless body of Mr. Field. At breakfast the next morning, they'd already discovered the disappearance. And the maid says his bed wasn't slept in at all. Oh, Think he could have committed suicide in the ocean. You such oh, a I hurried through my man. breakfast, listening to the gossip all around me. Yes, now, in broad daylight, I could hardly believe the thing had really happened last night. You know, the hotel manager thinks it might be murder. What? I heard him phoning for the police. The police? I hadn't counted on that. Anything wrong, my dear? You look sick. I do feel a bit dizzy. I think I'll get some fresh air. Oh, poor dear. It must be quite a shock to her. She came up on the train with Mr. Field, you know. All in the open air, I let the wind cool my fevered face as I hurried down toward the beach. It was only 9.30 in the morning. A whole day. A whole evening before Michael could come for the body. And the police would be around all day investigating, snooping. And all the time, Mr. Field would be sitting in my closet, staring blankly out of his sightless eyes. When I reached my cabin, I put a hand on the doorknob. Suddenly, I, I went cold all over. The door was unlocked. I stood still as a statue, listening. Yes, if there was someone inside. Someone moving around. I only had my handbag. I had a pistol in it. I always carried it for protection. But my handbag was inside on the dresser. Slowly... Slowly, I pressed the door open. Half inch, an inch. And then the door creaked. Is that you, Miss Winter? The maid. It 
was only the maid, of course. She'd be making up the bed. Why hadn't I thought of that? Miss Winter, is that you? Yes, it's I. What are you doing at that closet with those keys? Why, they're just my pass keys, Miss Winter. I was just going to tidy up the closet. I didn't ask you to do anything to the closet. Well, but that's part of the job, Miss Winter. I'm supposed to do that in all the rooms. Well, you leave this one alone. Keep away from that closet, do you hear? Yes, Miss Winter. But I was only trying to help. When I want your help. I'll ask for it. Now, please leave it once. Just as you say, Miss Winter. I'm sorry if I did anything wrong. Did she suspect anything? I hadn't liked her tone. Why? Why had I been so sharp with her? Now she'd surely think there was something in the closet. Something she shouldn't see. At lunchtime, I didn't want to leave the cabin. I sat at the window. And I could almost feel the sightless eyes of Mr. Field staring at me through the closet door. Someone at the door. Who? Who? Just a minute. Uh, Miss Winter? Miss Carola Winter? Yes, I'm Miss Winter. I'm sorry to trouble you, Miss Winter. I'm Detective Sergeant Smith from headquarters. Uh, may I come in for a moment? Well, yes, please do. What can I do for you, Sergeant Smith? Uh, we're out here investigating this field business. He uh, hasn't turned up yet. Well, I'm sure he will in time. Well, I wish I could be so sure, Miss Winter. What do you mean? We've gone through his room, found some mighty queer things. Queer things? Yeah, it seems this Mr. Fields is in some sort of racket. There's a good chance he may have been murdered. Well, you don't say. I uh, understand you came up on the train with him. Yes, yes, that's true. Yeah. Did you uh, have any conversation with him on the train? Mm, no, none at all. Uh-huh. Uh... You're the Carola Winter who writes the mystery novels, aren't you? <laughs> the same. <laughs> so I've read every one of them. They're darn good, Miss Winter. Why, thank you. Uh, do you think you'll get a plot out of this? Uh, I mean, Mr. Field. Why, uh, I can't tell yet. I wish you'd keep me posted on developments in case it does turn out to have a plot. Well, I sure will, Miss Winter. Uh, by the way, we found this picture among the papers in Field's room. I'm, I'm showing it to everybody around in case they might recognize it. It's an old newspaper item, about ten years old. Can't figure out why he was carrying it around. It's about a guy named Wycliffe. It's wanted for murder in Canada. Here, take a look at it. I felt the blood racing in my veins, pounding at my wrists. The picture of the man named Wycliffe, who was wanted for murder in Canada, was a picture of Michael Barrett. Looks as if Michael Barrett is a lucky guy. With a beautiful woman ready to commit murder for him. Mm-hmm. But what'll he do when she runs out of victims and begins looking at him with a calculating eye? <laughs> as for Carola, she sinned heavily. Because murder is the greatest sin. Yes, if you ask me, she'd better hope for a depression, then all wages will go down, including the wages of sin. <laughs> well, I, I never knew that murder and economics were related, Mr. Host. Oh, definitely, Mary. Take the high cost of living, for instance. 
Why, those prices are murder. <laughs> oh, yes, Mr. Host, it is difficult when the cost of living starts to climb. But then, so often, the things that really add up to good living are just simple, inexpensive pleasures. Like that piping hot cup of Lipton tea that many of us find waiting when we come down to breakfast each morning. As you read the morning paper and sip that cheery cup of Lipton's, the whole world seems brighter. It's simply wonderful the way that lively, spirited Lipton tea gets you off to a fresh start. For Lipton's brisk flavor gives you all the natural zest of tea at its best. Gives you extra delight, extra satisfaction. So remember this, folks. At breakfast time, dinner time, or any other time when you want a grand, refreshing drink, pour yourself a cup of Lipton tea. And now, let's get back to the rock-bound coast of Skeleton Bay and see how Carola entertains the grisly guest in her closet. I don't remember now how I got rid of that Detective Smith. I, I told him I'd never seen the man in the picture and sent him away. The day was interminable. From my window, I could see the guests moving about the beach. But none of them went in swimming. The weather was too rough. I wondered if Michael would be able to bring the boat over tonight. If not, how much longer could I sit guard over Mr. Field in the closet? Now and then, I'd see Detective Smith poking around on the beach. And then... Without warning, he was standing over the very spot where Michael had stabbed Mr. Field. I watched him bend down and examine something. Was there a telltale drop of blood there? Did Smith know that was the murder spot? I saw him frown. Then he stood up, walked quickly away. I had to know what it was he'd seen there. I slipped on a coat, went out. I started toward the spot on the beach. Going somewhere, oh. Miss Winter? Oh. You, Detective. Uh, going anywhere in particular? Uh, no, no, I'm just going up to the hotel for dinner. It's almost dinner time, you know. Oh, fine. I'll walk up with you if you don't mind. Not at all. Hey, can I help you? I'll take your arm there. <laughs> Thank you. Sand is so soft. Yes, it's still wet. We had high tide last night. Oh, um, Miss Winter. Yes? You a sound sleeper? What? Why do you ask? Well, I just thought maybe you might have heard something last night. Like a fight or something. Fight? Yes, yes. I was just looking at the sand back there, down near your cabin. It's all messed up, stamped around. What's that got to do with me? Oh, nothing at all. Except I think there was a fight there last night. Maybe that's where Mr. Field was killed. You... You think Mr. Field was murdered? It's beginning to look more and more like it, Miss Winter. Somehow, I, I don't know how, I managed to get through with the dinner. I hurried back to the cabin. I stopped at the door, shocked and unbelieving. There was a light inside. Someone was in there. This time, I had my handbag with me. I took the pistol out. Once more, I inched the door open. It happened. The thing I feared. The closet door was open. And there was the maid, stooping over the body of Mr. Field. What are you doing there? The body. It's Mr. Field. 
You killed him? Suppose I did. What are you doing with that gun? What do you think? No! The wind was high, and the weather was rough. And fortunately, no one heard the shot. I pushed her body into the closet next to the body of Mr. Field and closed the door. Now, now I was a murderer, too. Carla, quick. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, Michael, Michael, I thought you weren't coming. It's been a terrible day. What happened? Come here, I'll show you. Is he still in there? <laughs> See for yourself. Great Scott, a woman. Who is she? The maid. She opened the closet while I was out. You killed her? Yes, Michael. I, I had to kill her. There are detectives at the hotel looking for Mr. Field. Mm. I suppose if I was smart, I'd kill you, too. Then there'd be no one to talk. Yes, Michael, that would be smart. Go ahead. Kill me, if you can. I knew he couldn't kill me because I'd seen it in his eyes. We were two of a kind, both wild, both reckless, both eager for the thrill of danger. He, too, wanted to be like the wind. We'd both been brought together here by some force stronger than either of us. And we loved each other. Carla, darling. Michael. No more now, Michael. We have work to do. Yes. I'll take them down to the boat. I'll help you. We carried Mr. Field and the maid down to the boat. I'll take them out away and dump them. And after that, Michael? After that? Then I'm going home. To your house on the cliff on the other side of the bay? Yes, Carola. Michael, take me with you. What? Take me with you to your house up there on the cliff. I'm sorry. I can't. You, you can't? Why can't you? There isn't anything I can tell you. What are you hiding up there in the house on the cliff? You mustn't ask. Please, Carola, you mustn't ask. Why, you're married. You have a wife up there. No. Then what? I can't tell you. But you... You're going away, leaving me forever. Not forever, Carola. Go back to the city. I'll come to you soon. I returned to the city and waited. I waited a week, a month. But Michael Barrett did not come. I wrote to him, but there was no answer. And then one evening, I saw him. I was returning home in a taxi, and I saw him, standing across the street, looking up at my window. When he saw me get out of the cab, he turned and started to hurry away. Michael! Michael! Michael, don't go away! Michael! Michael, why did you try to run away? Don't you know? You're afraid. Yeah, let's call it that. But you love me, Michael, don't you? Carola, it's no good. There's nothing but ruin for both of us if I stay. 
We'll be together forever. It's impossible. I won't let you go back to that house on the cliff. I don't care what it is you're hiding up there. I won't let you go back. Goodbye, Carol. Wait. I'm going. Better forget about me. Don't go yet, Mr. Whitecliffe. So you know about that, too. I saw the old newspaper clipping Mr. Field carried. I see. Why are you looking at me like that? Do you know why I killed Mr. Field? Because it tried to blackmail me about that old murder. But, Michael, dear, I'm a good deal smarter than Mr. Field. You see, I write mystery novels. I know how to handle such things. What do you mean? Wouldn't do you any good to kill me. I've written out all about you. Your real name and about that old murder in Canada. It would be found if I should ever be killed. Oh. Michael, darling, I'm blackmailing you. But there's only one thing I want from you. Your love. It shouldn't be so hard for you to meet my terms. All right, Carla. You win. We'll be married tonight. Soon after we were married, Michael began going out evenings. Once, sometimes twice a week. Staying out all night. He'd return late the next day. When I asked where he'd been, his temper would flare up into something terrible. I stopped asking, but I couldn't rest. I had to know where he went. One evening, I followed him. He boarded a train for Skeleton Bay. At Skeleton Bay, he set out to walk from the station, and I followed. It was no longer summer. Trees were bare, and the night was forbidding. I kept behind him when he skirted the bay to the narrow road that led up toward his house high on the cliff. It was a small stone house, and the wind whistled around it, against it, and above it. I stole to one of the windows. It was barred, like a prison. Carefully, I raised my head above the sill, peered into a lighted room. Michael was there with a woman. For the first time in my life, I knew the meaning of frustration, jealousy. Michael told me he wasn't married, but this woman, I'd helped him to do murder. I'd killed for him. I'd lied to that detective for him. And all the while, this was the secret he'd been keeping from me. I opened my handbag. I took out the pistol. I looked into the room again. The woman was alone now. Michael was gone. So you came <gasps> up after all, Carola. Michael, you, you sneaked out. You knew I was here. I'm sorry you saw through that window, Carola. Is that your secret? That woman? Part of it, but it's the part you mustn't know. But I do know it now. That's why I've got to kill you, Carola. That knife. You still got that knife? Yes, Carola. Well, I've got this, Michael. <laughs> He fell at my feet. And I looked down and watched him die. Now I knew why I'd really come to Skeleton Bay that first day. It was for this. To kill Michael Barrett. So he's dead. <laughs> at last. You've killed him. You. The woman in the house. You. You saw me kill him? Yes, I saw you. What are you going to do about it? Help you dispose of the body, of course. Help me dispose of the body? 
Those were the very words I'd said to Michael Barrett down there on the beach. Now this woman was saying them to me. Who, who are you? I'm Lisbeth Wycliffe. I'm Michael's sister. Sister? And you want to help me dispose of his body? See the bars on those windows? Yes. I've been a prisoner in this house for ten years. You what? Michael killed the man I was going to marry ten years ago in Canada. He murdered him. But, but this house, this prison... Michael brought me here. He's kept me a prisoner because he knew if I got free, I'd tell the world he was a murderer. And that's the secret. The secret he wouldn't even tell me. I shot her. Yes, I killed her too. There outside the house and she fell beside Michael. And I rolled both bodies over the cliff, down into the sea. This is the end of my book. The best mystery novel I've ever written. I know that in writing it, I deliver myself into the hands of the law. But I can't stop. I can't help myself. So now, I'm finished. I will mail it to my publisher and wait for Detective Sergeant Smith Come and get me. Well, it looks as if Carola's mystery novel will earn a lot of money after she's executed. Yes, but I'd say it's tainted money. Hmm? Why tainted? Because she'll be dead, and a ghost can't own money, so taint hers. <laughs> The trouble with Carola was that her conscience was too little and too late. It told her not to commit murder after she'd done it. Well, that's certainly too late, Mr. Host. Oh, yes, Mary, especially for her victims. And now, what's on your mind? Well, Mr. Host, right here, I'd like to say a word to our listeners on behalf of our veterans. You know, friends, ex-servicemen are returning to civilian jobs with a lot to offer their employers. They've had valuable training and experience in highly specialized service jobs. Many of them were able to keep up with their civilian jobs and learn new trades through special correspondence courses. And they're coming home fully equipped to do the same fine job as civilians that they did in the services. So let's give them every employment opportunity to put their increased skill to work. <laughs> And so, friends, we take our leave of lovely Carola Winter. She would have been better off if she'd remembered that the pen is mightier than the sword. Because the sword is leading her right back to the pen anyhow. <laughs> oh, yes, and remember, friends, when you go on a vacation, always insist on plenty of closet space. Yes, you never know what unexpected guests might drop in or drop dead. <laughs> by the way, this month's Inner Sanctum mystery novel is Death in the Limelight by A.E. Martin. And next week, the makers of Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup will bring you another Inner Sanctum mystery directed by Hyman Brown. 
It's about a young chemist who discovers the secret of perpetual life. But he made the mistake of getting involved with death. <laughs> so, until next Tuesday, good night. Pleasant dreams. Mm. <laughs> Here's a swell dish, folks, that's easy to make and mighty easy to take. Lipton's Noodle Soup. You can prepare it in a jiffy, and the whole family will love its delicious chickeny-tasting broth so full of tender golden noodles. Lipton's Noodle Soup has all the fresh-cooked, homemade flavor of grandmother's noodle soup. Yet it's economical. It costs less and makes lots more than canned soups. So get Lipton's Noodle Soup Mix tomorrow. And don't forget to tune in next Tuesday night for another Inner Sanctum Mystery. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. It's a wonder she had time to write mystery novels. She was so busy committing murder and blackmail. Caroline Winter moved quickly through one to the other. So did Michael, not such a good matrimonial prospect. That was Skeleton Bay, Inner Sanctum, from February 5, 1946. The voice of Michael came from Martin Gable, whose peak of fame came the year before when he narrated Norman Corwin's A Note of Triumph, marking the end of World War II in Europe. Well, the tea is all gone for this week. We'll have more entertainment next week, though, and I hope you can be with me for that. We'll have, among other things, X-1 here on Skywave Audio Theater. A cabin near the beach, a flash in the night, and a novelist with an active imagination and an inclination to help, and perhaps a lack of principle, as it turns out. And then, of course, you have to add a dead man, a very recently dead man. All of it adds up to the makings of a good mystery for a novelist, but how far is she willing to follow the story to push it along? A question to be asked in the inner sanctum. Our story comes from February 5th, 1946, and now... This way, through the creaking door. Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup present Inner Sanctum Mysteries. of the mystic marvels of manifold murder. <laughs> this is your host, extending a cordial invitation to step through the creaking door of the inner sanctum, where we probe deep into the dark and cavernous depths of men's souls to see what makes them kill. Mm -hmm. Our clinic here is the whole vast world of crime. And you who listen in may hear us dissect our characters at a safe distance 
And unless your nerves are strong, you'd better take my advice and uh, keep your distance. <laughs> Why, Mr. Host, that's not the kind of advice to give folks. It sounds unfriendly. Well, what would you suggest, Mary? Well, give them some sort of friendly advice. Like pointing out to them the extra delight they'll get from a cheering cup of Lipton tea. Then go on to tell them why Lipton's is so downright delicious. Tell them that the reason is Lipton's brisk flavor. And don't forget to mention that brisk is the tea expert's own word for the spirited, full-bodied flavor of Lipton's. So refreshing and so zestful. Explain that Lipton's brisk flavor is never flat, but always lively and, and satisfying. And in closing, remind them to try Lipton's soon, because in every cup of Lipton's there's extra enjoyment. And now that's the kind of advice you should give, folks. Well, Mary, you seem to have given it to them already. So we can go ahead and get launched on Skeleton Bay. That's the title of tonight's story. An original radio play by Emil Tepperman. It's about a lady novelist, a writer of mystery stories. It opens at a swanky hotel with private cabins situated on a storm-swept rock-bound coast. The story itself is all about... <laughs> you guessed it. Murder. And here's Betty Lou Gerson as Carol Winter, the lady novelist, who will give us a blow-by-blow -blow description. I'll tell you first about the night I met Michael Barrett. It was in August at Skeleton Bay. I'd come to the hotel supposedly for a rest. That was what I kept telling myself. But in reality, I didn't know why I'd come here. Skeleton Bay. I'd seen the name Skeleton advertised Bay. months ago. Skeleton Bay. Since then, it Skeleton kept hammering and hammering, hammering Skeleton at the inside Bay. of my brain. Skeleton it's like the voice Skeleton of implacable fate commanding. Commanding. Skeleton commanding. Skeleton Because I didn't like crowds, the hotel manager had given me a cabin near the beach all to myself. It was the middle of the night, but I couldn't sleep. The wind came in from the ocean, howling like a hungry beast across the shoals. And the pounding of the surf mingled with the angry, battle growl of the sea. I sat at the window in the dark, staring out at the beach. I was restless, excited. It was then I saw the signal. It was just a winking little light few yards away on the beach. Someone was blinking a flashlight on and off, on and off. I was able to make out the figure of a man in boots and a leather jacket. He was signaling toward the hotel. But to whom? I had the answer in a moment. A man moved past my window, going down toward the light. He had his collar turned up against the wind, his hat brim pulled low. But I knew who it was, Mr. Fields. A small, furtive man who'd come upon the train with me. The two men met, barely a stone's throw from my window. I could hardly see them huddled closely together. This was excitement, mystery, intrigue, the stimulation I wanted and needed. I had to know what was going on. I threw on a raincoat, opened the cabin door. The wind swept my hair in a streamer, and the spray stung my face as I hurried down the beach. My blood began to race, my heart to pound. Those two men were not engaged in any conference. They were locked in struggle. It was a deadly, silent struggle with only a grunt now and then. I saw the flashing gleam of a knife. But I couldn't tell who had the weapon. The tall man in the leather jacket or the furtive Mr. Field. And then... Then I saw 
saw the blade plunge home into the throat of the furtive Mr. F I felt a sudden surge of wild elation. This was murder. I had witnessed murder. The tall man let the body of Mr. Fields slide down to the sand. Then he looked up and saw me. He stood there with a bloody knife in his hand, and we looked at each other. Who are you? I'm Carol Winter. I have this cabin here, number five. You saw me kill him? Yes, I saw you. What are you going to do about it? I'm going to help you dispose of the body. He told me his name was Michael Barrett. He lived on the opposite side of the bay in the house high up on the cliff. It won't be so easy to get rid of the body. If I had the boat, I could take him out and drop him over, but it's too rough tonight. If there was some place to hide him for a day, I could come across in the boat tomorrow night. You can hide him in the closet in my cabin. Nobody will look there. Better lock the closet door. Yes, of course. You sure nobody will come snooping here? Nobody comes here but the maid. All right. I'll be back tomorrow night with a boat. Did you pick up the knife? Yeah. Got it in my pocket. Well, I guess that's all. Good night, Carola. Good night, Michael. All night I sat up alone with the locked closet door between me and the staring, sightless body of Mr. Field. At breakfast the next morning, they'd already discovered the disappearance and of the Mr. Field. And the maid says his bed wasn't slept in at all. Oh, I think he could have committed suicide in the ocean. He was such oh, a I hurried through my man. breakfast listening to the gossip all around me. Now in broad daylight, I could hardly believe the thing had really happened last night. You know the hotel manager thinks it might be murder. What? I heard him phoning for the police. The police? <laughs> I hadn't counted on that. Anything wrong, my dear? You look sick. I do feel a bit dizzy. I think I'll get some fresh air. Oh, poor dear. It must be quite a shock to her. She came up on the train with Mr. Field, you know. All in the open air, I let the wind cool my fevered face as I hurried down toward the beach. It was only 9.30 in the morning. A whole day. A whole evening before Michael could come for the body. And the police would be around all day investigating, snooping. And all the time, Mr. Field would be sitting in my closet, staring blankly out of his sightless eyes. When I reached my cabin, I put a hand on the doorknob. Suddenly, I, I went cold all over. The door was unlocked. I stood still as a statue, listening. Yes, there was someone inside. Someone moving around. I only had my handbag. I had a pistol in it. I always carried it for protection. But my handbag was inside on the dresser. Slowly, slowly I pressed the door open. Half inch, an inch. And then the door creaked. Is that you, Miss Winter? The maid. It was only the maid, of course. She'd be making up the bed. Why hadn't I thought of that? Miss Winter? Is that you? Yes, it's I. What are you doing at that closet with those keys? Why, they're just my pass keys, Miss Winter. I was just going to tidy up the closet. I didn't ask you to do anything to the closet. Well, but that's part of the job, Miss Winter. I'm supposed to do that in all the rooms. Well, you leave this one alone. Keep away from that closet, do you hear? Yes, Miss Winter. 
But I was only trying to help. But I want your help. I'll ask for it. Now, please leave at once. Just as you say, Miss Whitty. I'm sorry if I did anything wrong. Did she suspect anything? I hadn't liked her tone. Why? Why had I been so sharp with her? Now she'd surely think there was something in the closet. Something she shouldn't see. At lunchtime, I didn't want to leave the cabin. I sat at the window. And I could almost feel the sightless eyes of Mr. Fields staring at me through the closet door. Someone at the door. Who? Who? Just a minute. Uh, Miss Winter? Miss Carola Winter? Yes, I'm Miss Winter. I'm sorry to trouble you, Miss Winter. I'm Detective Sergeant Smith from headquarters. Uh, may I come in for a moment? Oh, yes, please do. What can I do for you, Sergeant Smith? Uh, we're out here investigating this field business. He uh, hasn't turned up yet. Well, I'm sure he will in time. Well, I wish I could be so sure, Miss Winter. What do you mean? We've gone through his room, found some mighty queer things. Queer things? Yeah, it seems this Mr. Fields is in some sort of racket. There's a good chance he may have been murdered. Well, you don't say. I uh, understand you came up on the train with him. Yes, yes, that's true. Yeah. Did you uh, have any conversation with him on the train? Mm, no, none at all. Uh -huh. Uh. You're the Carol of Winter who writes the mystery novels, aren't you? <laughs> the same. <laughs> yes, I've read every one of them. They're darn good, Miss Winter. Why, thank you. Uh, do you think you'll get a plot out of this? Uh, I mean, Mr. Field. Why, uh, I can't tell yet. I wish you'd keep me posted on developments in case it does turn out to have a plot. Well, I sure will, Miss Winter. Uh, by the way, we found this picture among the papers in Field's room. I'm, I'm showing it to everybody around in case they might recognize it. It's an old newspaper item, about ten years old. Can't figure out why he was carrying it around. It's about a guy named Wycliffe. It's wanted for murder in Canada. Here, take a look at it. I felt the blood racing in my veins, pounding at my wrists. The picture of the man named Wycliffe, who was wanted for murder in Canada, it was a picture of Michael Barrett. Looks as if Michael Barrett is a lucky guy. With a beautiful woman ready to commit murder for him. Mm-hmm. But what'll he do when she runs out of victims and begins looking at him with a calculating eye? <laughs> as for Carola, she sinned heavily. Because murder is the greatest sin. Yes, if you ask me, she'd better hope for a depression, then all wages will go down, including the wages of sin. <laughs> well, I, I never knew that murder and economics were related, Mr. Host. Oh, definitely, Mary. Take the high cost of living, for instance. Why, those prices are murder. <laughs> oh, yes, Mr. Host, it is difficult when the cost of living starts to climb. But then, so often, the things that really add up to good living are just simple, inexpensive pleasures. Like that piping hot cup of Lipton tea that many of us find waiting when we come down to breakfast each morning. As you read the morning paper and sip that cheery cup of Lipton's, the whole world seems brighter. It's simply wonderful the way that lively, spirited Lipton tea gets you off to a fresh start. 
for Lipton's brisk flavor gives you all the natural zest of tea at its best. Gives you extra delight, extra satisfaction. So remember this, folks. At breakfast time, dinner time, or any other time when you want a grand, refreshing drink, pour yourself a cup of Lipton tea. And now... Let's get back to the rock-bound coast of Skeleton Bay and see how Carola entertains the grisly guest in her closet. I don't remember now how I got rid of that Detective Smith. I, I told him I'd never seen the man in the picture and sent him away. The day was interminable. From my window, I could see the guests moving about the beach. But none of them went in swimming. The weather was too rough. I wondered if Michael would be able to bring the boat over tonight. If not, how much longer could I sit guard over Mr. Field in the closet? Now and then, I'd see Detective Smith poking around on the beach. And then, without warning, he was standing over the very spot where Michael had stabbed Mr. Field. I watched him bend down and examine something. Was there a telltale drop of blood there? Did Smith know that was the murder spot? I saw him frown. Then he stood up, walked quickly away. I had to know what it was he'd seen there. I slipped on a coat, went out. Started toward the spot on the beach. Going somewhere, Miss Winter? Oh, it's you, Detective. Uh, Going anywhere in particular? Uh, No, no, I'm just going up to the hotel for dinner. It's almost dinner time, you know. Oh, fine, I'll walk up with you if you don't mind. Not at all. Hey, can I help you? I'll take your arm there. Thank you. Sand is so soft. Yes, it's still wet. We had high tide last night. Oh, um, Miss Winter. Yes? You a sound sleeper? What? Why do you ask? Well, I just thought maybe you might have heard something last night. Like a fight or something. Fight? Yes, yes. I was just looking at the sand back there, down near your cabin. It's all messed up, stamped around. What's that got to do with me? Oh, nothing at all. Except I think there was a fight there last night. Maybe that's where Mr. Field was killed. You... You think Mr. Field was murdered? It's beginning to look more and more like it, Miss Winter. I don't know how I managed to get through with the dinner. I hurried back to the cabin. I stopped at the door, shocked and unbelieving. There was a light inside. Someone was in there. This time, I had my handbag with me. I took the pistol out. Once more, I inched the door open. It happened. The thing I feared. The closet door was open. And there was the maid stooping over the body of Mr. Field. What are you doing there? The body. It's Mr. Field. You killed him. Suppose I did. What are you doing with that gun? What do you think? No! The wind was high and the weather was rough. Unfortunately, no one heard the shot. I pushed her body into the closet next to the body of Mr. Field and closed the door. Now, now I was a murderer, too. 
Where's it? Lillian Carroll, quick. Yes, yes. Michael, Michael, I thought you weren't coming. It's been a terrible day. What happened? Come here, I'll show you. Is he still in there? <laughs> See for yourself. Great Scott, a woman. Who is she? The maid. She opened the closet while I was out. You killed her? Yes, Michael. I, I had to kill her. There are detectives at the hotel looking for Mr. Field. Mm. I suppose if I was smart, I'd kill you too. Then there'd be no one to talk. Yes, Michael, that would be smart. Go ahead. Kill me, if you can. I knew he couldn't kill me because I'd seen it in his eyes. We were two of a kind, both wild, both reckless, both eager for the thrill of danger. He, too, wanted to be like the wind. We'd both been brought together here by some force stronger than either of us. And we loved each other. Carla, darling. Michael. No more now, Michael. We have work to do. Yes. I'll take them down to the boat. I'll help you. We carried Mr. Field and the maid down to the boat. Uh, I'll take them out away and dump them. And after that, Michael? After that, then I'm going home. To your house on the cliff on the other side of the bay? Yes, Carola. Michael, take me with you. What? Take me with you to your house up there on the cliff. I'm sorry. I can't. You, you can't? Why can't you? There isn't anything I can tell you. What are you hiding up there in the house on the cliff? You mustn't ask. Please, Carola, you mustn't ask. Why, you're married. You have a wife up there. No. Then what? I can't tell you. But you... You're going away. Leaving me forever. Not forever, Carola. Go back to the city. I'll come to you soon. I returned to the city and waited. I waited a week, a month. But Michael Barrett did not come. I wrote to him. There was no answer. And then one evening, I saw him. I was returning home in a taxi, and I saw him standing across the street looking up at my window. When he saw me get out of the cab, he turned and started to hurry away. Michael! Michael! Michael, don't go away! Michael! Michael, why did you try to run away? Don't you know? Well, you're afraid. Yeah, let's call it that. But you love me, Michael, don't you? Carola, it's no good. There's nothing but ruin for both of us if I stay. We'll be together forever. It's impossible. I won't let you go back to that house on the cliff. I don't care what it is you're hiding up there. I won't let you go back. Goodbye, Carola. Wait. I'm going. Better forget about it. Don't go yet, Mr. Whitecliffe. So you know about that, too. I saw the old newspaper clipping Mr. Field carried. I see. Why are you looking at me like that? Do you know why I killed Mr. Field? Because it tried to blackmail me about that old murder. But, Michael, dear, I'm a good deal smarter than Mr. Field. You see, I write mystery novels. I know how to handle such things. What do you mean? Wouldn't do you any good to kill me. I've written out all about you. Your real name and about that old murder in Canada. 
would be found if I should ever be killed. Oh. Michael, darling, I'm blackmailing you. There's only one thing I want from you. Your love. It shouldn't be so hard for you to meet my terms. All right, Carola. You win. We'll be married tonight. Soon after we were married, Michael began going out evenings. Once, sometimes twice a week. Staying out all night. He'd return late the next day. When I asked where he'd been, his temper would flare up into something terrible. I stopped asking. But I couldn't rest. I had to know where he went. One evening, I followed him. He boarded a train for Skeleton Bay. At Skeleton Bay, he set out to walk from the station. And I followed. It was no longer summer. Trees were bare and the night was forbidding. I kept behind him when he skirted the bay to the narrow road that led up toward his house high on the cliff. It was a small stone house. And the wind whistled around it, against it, and above it. I stole to one of the windows. It was barred like a prison. Carefully, I raised my head above the sill, peered into a lighted room. Michael was there with a woman. For the first time in my life, I knew the meaning of frustration, jealousy. Michael told me he wasn't married, but this woman... I'd helped him to do murder. I'd killed for him. I'd lied to that detective for him. And all the while, this was the secret he'd been keeping from me. I opened my handbag. I took out the pistol. I looked into the room again. The woman was alone now. Michael was gone. So you came <gasps> up after all, Carola. Michael, you, you sneaked out. You knew I was here. I'm sorry you saw through that window, Carola. Is that your secret? That woman? Part of it, but it's the part you mustn't know. But I do know it now. That's why I've got to kill you, Carola. That knife. You've still got that knife. Yes, Carola. Well, I've got this, Mike. Ah! He fell at my feet. And I looked down and watched him die. Now I knew why I'd really come to Skeleton Bay that first day. It was for this to kill Michael Barrett. So he's dead. <laughs> At last. You've killed him. You. The woman in the house. You. You saw me kill him? Yes, I saw you. But what are you going to do about it? Help you dispose of the body, of course. <gasps> Help me dispose of the body. Those were the very words I'd said to Michael Barrett down there on the beach. Now this woman was saying them to me. Who, who are you? I'm Elizabeth Wycliffe. I'm Michael's sister. Sister? And you want to help me dispose of his body? See the bars on those windows? Yes. I've been a prisoner in this house for ten years. You what? Michael killed the man I was going to marry ten years ago in Canada. He murdered him. But, but this house, this prison... Michael brought me here. He's kept me a prisoner. Because he knew if I got free, I'd tell the world he was a murderer. 
that's the secret. The secret he wouldn't even tell me. I shot her. Yes, I killed her too. There outside the house and she fell beside Michael. And I rolled both bodies over the cliff, down into the sea. This is the end of my book. The best mystery novel I've ever written. I know that in writing it, I deliver myself into the hands of the law. But I can't stop. I can't help myself. So now, I'm finished. I will mail it to my publisher and wait for Detective Sergeant Smith to come and get me. Well, it looks as if Carola's mystery novel will earn a lot of money after she's executed. Yes, but I'd say it's tainted money. Hmm? Why tainted? Because she'll be dead, and a ghost can't own money. So taint hers. <laughs> the trouble with Carola was that her conscience was too little and too late. It told her not to commit murder after she'd done it. Well, that's certainly too late, Mr. Host. Oh, yes, Mary, especially for her victims. And now, what's on your mind? Well, Mr. Host, right here, I'd like to say a word to our listeners on behalf of our veterans. You know, friends, ex-servicemen are returning to civilian jobs with a lot to offer their employers. They've had valuable training and experience in highly specialized service jobs. Many of them were able to keep up with their civilian jobs and learn new trades through special correspondence courses. And they're coming home fully equipped to do the same fine job as civilians that they did in the services. So let's give them every employment opportunity to put their increased skill to work. And so, friends, we take our leave of lovely Carola Winter. She would have been better off if she'd remembered that the pen is mightier than the sword. Because the sword is leading her right back to the pen anyhow. <laughs> oh, yes, and remember, friends, when you go on a vacation, always insist on plenty of closet space. Yes, you never know what unexpected guests might drop in or drop dead. <laughs> By the way, this month's Inner Sanctum mystery novel is Death in the Limelight by A.E. Martin. And next week, the makers of Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup will bring you another Inner Sanctum mystery directed by Hyman Brown. It's about a young chemist who discovers the secret of perpetual life. But he made the mistake of getting involved with death. <laughs> so, until next Tuesday... Good night. Pleasant dreams. Mm. <laughs> Here's a swell dish, folks, that's easy to make and mighty easy to take. Lipton's noodle soup. You can prepare it in a jiffy, and the whole family will love its delicious chickeny-tasting broth so full of tender golden noodles. Lipton's noodle soup has all the fresh-cooked, homemade flavor of grandmother's noodle soup. 
yet it's economical. It costs less and makes lots more than canned soups. So get Lipton's Noodle Soup Mix tomorrow. And don't forget to tune in next Tuesday night for another Inner Sanctum Mystery. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. It's a wonder she had time to write mystery novels. She was so busy committing murder and blackmail. Caroline Winter moved quickly through one to the other. So did Michael, not such a good matrimonial prospect. That was Skeleton Bay, Inner Sanctum, from February 5th, 1946. The voice of Michael came from Martin Gable, whose peak of fame came the year before when he narrated Norman Corwin's A Note of Triumph, marking the end of World War II in Europe. Well, the tea is all gone for this week. We'll have more entertainment next week, though, and I hope you can be with me for that. We'll have, among other things, X-1 here on Skywave Audio Theatre. <laughs>